You're listening to Black Sheep and Bad Apples. This is a show where I, your host, Lauren O'Brien, learn a little bit about history and teach it to my friends. Today's friend is Swampy. Hey, buddy, we got off to a little bit of a stutter start there, didn't we? Sometimes. It happens to the best of us. Yeah, it definitely does. Swampy, last week, you stunted on me by using a term I was unfamiliar with, non-Euclidean. You... You yeah. remember that? Yeah. Yeah. After looking it up, I just wanted to confront you in front of the audience. Um, how dare you bring math onto this show? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's all they have me doing. This is a strictly non-math show, and I will be damned if you do it again. <laughs> so I wanted all of our listeners... How are you doing, by the way? A lot of math. <laughs> it's it's just been consuming my entire life. Yeah, we you want to ta- know how to do derivatives? I can nope. tell you all... Oh. Not interested. We were talking right before the show, and you were saying that you're actually itching to get back home and do more math homework. (laughs) (laughs) It's my life now. Yeah, well, this is my life, so. Well, it's nice to be in it for a while. Well, yeah, I I always appreciate seeing you. You're a little heartfelt on me. Mm. Yeah. So, Swampy. Single tear. The The look you gave me was awesome. (laughs) Remember to point your mic into your mouth, by the way. Yes, into the mouth. What do you know about Virginia Hall? I am not familiar with Virginia Hall. Good, good. Um, well, this will be exciting. What are you? Are you familiar with um, World War Two? I. Uh, that was the one after World War One, right? It turns out that that it was. Yeah. But wasn't that the yeah. one to end all wars, the Great War? Which we all the know. First it, one. Yep. Which we all know it definitely did do that. So there's so a second. There's another. Yeah, there's a sequel. All right, not, you're gonna it, have to like Star Wars. Not as good as the original. I feel like I'm gonna be missing some backstory here because yeah. I, I were they done in a different time frame or? Well, no, they happened concurrently actually. <laughs> <laughs> Just right at the same time, <laughs> or one after the other. I can't remember what concurrently means. Anyway, you're about to learn. <laughs> you're about to learn. <laughs> About Virginia Hall. Yeah, tell me about it. On April 6th, 1906, Virginia Hall was pooped into this world by her mother, Barbara Virginia Hamill. That's one way to do it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the daughter of Edward Lee Hall. Obviously. She was bo- obviously. She was born in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Edwin Hall's father, Virginia's grandfather, John Wesley Hall, had gone off uh, on the sea on one of his father's ships and had, uh, after multiple years at sea, had saved up enough money to buy his own ship. And in the end, he would end up being very successful in the shipping uh, the shipping industry. Doing the whole mercantile thing. Yeah, yeah, doing the whole mercantile thing. From Judith L. Pearson's book, Wolves at the Door. Quote, at the age of nine, Hall, this is Virginia's grandfather, had stowed away on his father's clipper ships. After a multi after a multi year adventure at sea, he had saved up enough money to buy his own ship and ultimately became very successful in the shipping industry as an importer of Chinese goods. So, so a nine year old Swampy gets on a fucking ship, and then a couple years later, maybe even ten, is just like banking on this industry. I mean, that's the it's, perfect candidate for all those jobs that want an entry level position and ten years experience. Yeah. Well, and at the age of nine, guess what? You're going to get 10 years of experience by the time you're <laughs> applying for that job. So, good job. 
I mean, they didn't have the pesky laws back then. You could probably start your career around like, you know, 12, 13. That's but true. if it's your That's dad's true. boat, you can get on a lot sooner. Yeah. It's true. If, you, if it's your dad's boat, probably his yacht, right? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, the fruit didn't fall far from the tree as Edwin would become a successful businessman by his own rights and probably a little bit of daddy's money. Uh, quote, her father, taking a lesson from his own father, had built a successful business in the real in real estate and movie houses. Virginia and her friends were to go to any movie that they wanted to absolutely free, end quote. So we're getting a little bit of Virginia Hall here and we're starting to like see All right. she, she grew up. A, she grew up feeling pretty good. Probably pretty working with popcorn stands and whatnot. I didn't read anything about that, but I, it's 1906. So she's between here and then, you know, it's like. She might have done lemonade stands, you know. Probably wasn't but. working in the textile. <laughs> no. Did not well, <laughs> moonlight at the Triangle Shirtwaist well, Factory. And her mom, as we'll later see, would never have allowed that to happen. So, well, actually, we're about to get to her right now. Oh. Virginia's mother, Barbara, Bar Bar Barbara, rather, uh, was raised uh, in an Episcopalian family descended from the Amish and Pennsylvanian Dutch, who were themselves early German settlers, which is pretty interesting for who Virginia ends up fighting later. Uh, Barbara had been a secretary before ultimately marrying her boss and Virginia's father, Edwin, because it's, you know, the early 1800s, or late 1800s, rather. Um, in this way, Barbara triumphed for, like, all of her life goals uh, by marrying into money, as it seemed was her design for young Virginia as well. Barbara always saw her wedding to a successful businessman as the way women were supposed to operate. In fact, a commonly held belief around this time was that women went to college to date college men who would be successful, and then they would marry those college men. Um, and that's how women were to be successful, by having a successful husband. So that's kind of like Barbara's mentality on, on this whole thing. Cool. Anyway, having said that, Virginia was raised in wealth, obviously. Uh, in 1909, when Virginia was three, she accompanied her family on an extended vacation to Europe for the first time, but definitely not the last time. Uh, during these trips, she would fall in love with foreign languages and culture, particularly France. So, we're, she's she's like a little bit of a, an aristocrat, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. Going on vacations to Europe when you're a kid, yeah. you know, Definitely well-to-do family type things. Yeah, and I'm sure it started off with her like mimicking these French people. She's like, oh, wee wee, blah, 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 blah. But she gained an affinity for the French yeah, she culture and language. She definitely did, and this is going to be like the centerpiece to our story today, her affinity for the French. Um, from Wolves at the Door, quote, It was a time when it was not unusual for wealthy families like the Halls to take extended holidays to see the world's sights. They traveled by ship in an, in elegant staterooms, ate fine foods, and celebrated the good life at sea. Once in Europe, the same privileged lifestyle prevailed. And although she was very young, Virginia soaked up the exotic cultures like a tiny sponge, which is fucking adorable. It's just so adorable. Um, she grew up on Boxhorn Farm, which was a 110-acre estate in Maryland, and spent a lot of her time outdoors, hunting, cleaning fish, milking horses. I don't know why I said horses. It was supposed to be cows. <laughs> you know, you do what you do. Right? No I'll, judgment. I'm going to blame it on autocorrect. <laughs> <laughs> Did you mean horses? <laughs> sure. 
Anyway, uh, from Wolves at the Door again. Quote, Virginia thought nothing of descenting a skunk or collecting snakes. <laughs> On one occasion, Virginia had arrived with what her teacher thought was a pretty new bracelet. On further investigation, she realized the, bla the bracelet was moving and, to her horror, realized it was a snake. <laughs> so she's like, yeah, kind, of a, kind of a tom girl. Yeah, I mean, descenting a skunk is something that, that's pretty fairly niche thing well, like was that a common ability back then i don't imagine it was i imagine that that's mainly like an outdoorsy kind of thing and um i mean i don't really i should have looked more up about her father and grandfather because i don't know if they were outdoorsy or anything like that um but like hunting gutting fish like all that makes sense but when you have got the the, the surgical precision to descent a skunk and i'm assuming to keep it as a pet because of what we know about her or just make the skunks around your house more safe. Yeah, like she, she's got some fucking that, something going on. That that's a, I've met a lot of rednecks, a lot of fish gutting, hunting, good old boy conservative types. Yeah. I don't think any of them can descent a skunk. <laughs> no. Well, and, and I also picture that those people would be like, "Why would I fucking want to?" <laughs> There's no reason to do that. Why don't go near this? No, you don't. Leave it alone. <laughs> Leave it alone. You, if you're worried about it making a smell, don't go near it. That seems to make the most sense to me. It seems pragmatic. Yeah. <laughs> um, her parents enrolled her in a, quote, posh, posh private high school um, named Roland Park Country School. Roland uh, Park Country School. Roland Park Country School. Uh, where Virginia would become renowned as a Donna Juanita. Um, and this is kind of in like her middle school to high school days. So we're, we're kind of like moving through the timeline pretty quickly here. Um, she became class president, editor in chief of the school's newspaper and a sports captain, tall, intelligent, independent, and gorgeous. Virginia quote, presented an irresistible challenge to those young men who dreamed of taming her. Virginia held, Virginia held such displays of male ardor in contempt, however, end quote. So that's. That's pretty cool. She's gorgeous and awesome, but is also like, I got shit to do, man. Either like, keep up with me or get the fuck out of my way, but don't... Well, and that also comes from, I think, a lot of her, her like, her mom's position of like, you need to be owned by a man in order to be successful. And like, here in her high school years, we can kind of see that she's like, kind of rebelling against that. I think politely, you know, I think her mom's like, she'll find one when she's ready, but I... Yeah, I think she's rebelling against it. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, she was kind and friendly, but also a tomboy who described herself as, quote, cantankerous and capricious, <laughs> which her classmates agreed with fully. She was also described as a, quote, class prophet uh, because of her natural leadership <laughs> qualities and charisma. <laughs> Can you can you see what we're kind of building to here, Swampy? Yeah, kind of that bard, high charisma type character yeah. thing going on. She just she's gonna have a way with words. Um, she graduated in 1924 from call or from high school, um, saying, and again from Wolves at the door, quote: "The only way for a woman to get ahead ahead in the world is to get an education." So she's got kind of this new age thing going on. And we're gonna explore that a little bit too in the future. Um, at a young age, she got engaged, but. Um, from a different book, A Woman of No Importance, uh, written by Sonia Purnell, quote, At the age of 19, Virginia dutifully became engaged and appeared destined for the confined domestic life 
of many other society women reaching adulthood in the 1920s, end quote. And just really quick, I want to talk about these books because A Woman of No Importance, super dope book. It's also one of the more current books on her. So we're going to be citing that book a lot in this this episode, listener. Um, And then Wolves at the Door is also a really good book. But I later found out it was written in 1954 when a lot of these classified documents about Virginia had not come out yet. So we're going to use a little bit of both and a couple of other sources, but um, a lot of it is going to be from A Woman of No Importance, which I highly recommend. Great right. book. I, the, both could be good, too, though, since yeah. 1954, it's still kind of fresh in the minds. and That's true. That's true. The, the more recent one is at least we have that classified information that already got out there. Yeah, and credit to Sonia Purnell, who wrote A Woman of No Importance. Like, She kind of described her the way she was studying Virginia in order to build such like a, an accurate picture of her. And it kind of sounds like that scene from it's always sunny in Philadelphia w- with like the, the Pepe Sylvia with Charlie, where he's got all like the, the, the newspapers all over the walls with like the strings and the pins in it. And he's like, Pepe Sylvia, Pepe Sylvia. <laughs> like that's kind of how it seems like Sonia Purnell had to piece this whole story together. Yeah. With the pinup board and the, the yeah. flags and strings and, yeah, all well, interweaving webs. Yeah, and so that's kind of why we're going to focus on her book a little bit more than any of the other books because she's got kind of a more broad overview of any of everything. She went wingnut conspiracy theory she, on the she, entire thing, dude. She did, and it's an actual conspiracy. <laughs> These are the best ones to have theories about. Yeah, indeed. And so, uh, you know, she was about to become like a typical society woman of the 1920s. Uh, Barbara expecting Virginia to marry for leisure and wealth and settle down. So her mom was like, cool, this is fucking happening. However, the freedoms of the outside world, uh, the outside world offered were far too enthralling for Virginia. Women of the era were beginning to do these new things called smoking and drinking in public. And some, to the disdain of the general public at large, were even wearing pants. Oh my. Yeah. Clappers? Yeah. I don't oh, know what clappers scandalous. are. Scandalous. Yeah, it's very scandalous, actually. Um, Virginia was one of these uh, new breeds of women. Uh, I don't like that word breed, but you know what I mean. <laughs> she, she was a, uh, one of these new types of women, and she eventually broke things off with her fiancé because he was entitled and just, like, constantly cheating on her. No. Yeah, it turns out... The rich guy she married was entitled? Yeah, yeah. Most women of this time, uh, including Virginia's mother, were baffled by Virginia's ambition. Her parents sent her to several prestigious colleges uh, in the U.S., including like Radcliffe College, which is now part of Harvard, Bernard College, which is now part of Columbia University, and uh, George Washington University. uh, And she sent her there to study to become a diplomat. She disliked the American colleges, uh, mostly because they were, like, stuffy. So I, I feel like Virginia kind of rebels against the, the more aristocratic takes on, on life. Um, they were a little bit too stuffy for her liking. And during this time, she developed a proficiency in French, Italian, and German, as well as other languages. In 1926, quote, a young, single, and unchaperoned daughter to Europe, end quote, was looked down upon. However, despite the common opinion held, her parents were progressive for their time and sent Virginia to France to finish her studies. It was there she began attending Sauron and the École des Soleurs. I'm going to fuck this up because this is all in French now. I'd like to hear it. The Sauron and the École des Services Politiques in France. And later she transferred to the Consulat Académique in Vienna to further prepare her for her work in the political sphere. 
After college, she applied with the State Department to begin her new government job. So she's kind of a worldly woman already, you know, and it's it's the thing I find. How many languages was that? I think she ended up knowing like six. Okay, that's in, cunning in total. right there. Yeah, and like I believe uh, only like three or four of them she was really fluent in, but she knew six or seven in total. But still quite a linguist. Yeah, quite a linguist. Just kind, of, And honestly, kind of like a, I feel like she's a cultured woman going kind of a, like, I don't know. I don't know how to, to put that thought into words. Making anyway. her way in the world when that wasn't quite acceptable. Yeah, exactly. Where she's like, I won't, I want to, well, especially because France, you know, they're, they're very much kind of a libertine um, um, nation. I'm sure a part of her was like, freedom. What is that like to not be crushed under, you know, my mom's, uh, my mom's opinions of me. And, and I don't know. I have to kick it with this entitled douche. Yeah. He's cheating on <laughs> for, me. For real. It's like, what do you mean? I just got to sit here and clean fucking baby diapers and breastfeed them till I'm fucking dead? No. I want to go see France. Anyway, at this point, six out of 1,500 foreign service officers were women. So, as she's applying to this, her odds are extremely long. Um, she took the entrance exam and passed it with flying colors. However, she wasn't allowed into the field of professional diplomat. We're going to get into that a little bit. That's... Do you have a guess as to why? Is it? Is it because misogyny? Because, yeah, penis. Because <laughs> of a penis. It, it, or lack thereof. <laughs> and also, or, this is going to be a reoccurring theme. The, the penis? The penis. The penis is going to be such a reoccurring theme in this episode. And what? not even because I wanted to write it to be funny. It just... It just keeps it popping just up. Keep, uh, but don't... <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. We nailed it, Swampy. We nailed it. <laughs> so, in 1931, when Virginia was 25, she was finally accepted into a position um, with the, the State Department in Warsaw, Poland, um, where she earned $2,000 a year, which was a respectable amount of like 37000 a year today. So, it's not great, but it's... Enough so, to live off It's of. entry level, for sure. Um, although at a secretary position, she was uh, happy to break into the State Department, she was quickly recognized as extremely proficient in her work. From this point onward, all quotes will be from a woman of no importance, uh, unless otherwise noted. Quote, Virginia nevertheless made an instant impression at work, conducting her duties, coding and decoding telegrams, dealing with the mail, processing diplomatic visas, and dispatching reports back to Washington on the increasingly tense political situation with flair and initiative very efficient bureaucrat yeah very efficient she's also because she, she's such, so charming too everybody's like she's just so good at this and she doesn't give me any lip as a woman she's a she seems nice she's a real go-getter yeah. <laughs> she really is actually as we'll kind of learn more about it i, I might be affecting that 1920s announcement <laughs> announcer voice in various parts of this that is fine <laughs> She's got flair and initiative. <laughs> um, she does this for a while when a year later she asks permission from her boss and receives it uh, to take the test required to apply for an official diplomatic position because she's just like a secretary at the moment. Um, she had passed the oral test uh, once and so was, she was just confident about her application. However, the subsequent written exam had mysteriously failed to reach her mailbox. 
Um, if these papers had arrived, perhaps many of the badass things that Virginia did later would never have been done. Um, seven months after her second attempt at the exam, she applied to she applies to transfer to Izmir in Turkey, which she obtained in April of 1933. That's still Ottoman Empire at that. Wait, no, that, it's, it's just. I think it's just after the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, yeah. it's that. Um, so she's in Turkey. 1933 um december 8th of that year virginia and a small group of friends they kind of gathered to eat lunch go on a hunting trek and spend the day in good company um they had packed their hunting shotguns and day packs and they began their miles long journey through a muddy and grassy bog to go to their hunting grounds along this route they encountered a wire fence while attempting to step over the fence virginia, virginia slips quote it was as she climbed over a wire fence running through the tall reeds of the wetlands that Virginia stumbled. As she fell, her gun slipped off of her shoulder and caught in her ankle-length coat. She reached out to grab it, but in doing so, fired around at point-blank range into her left foot. End quote. Ow. The slug violently ripped through her leg. <laughs> so, this is... Not good. Kind of hunting accident. It, it, I can't help but think about trying to get over a barbed wire fence and a long skirt that sounds tough yeah and i i also wonder if this was like before safeties were invented on guns because <laughs> like <laughs> i don't know i feel like it's it's common knowledge nowadays to like you always leave the safety on your gun no matter what until you're ready to fire you keep your safety on so i don't know i'm i'm curious about that and also didn't bother to look it up so we're gonna yeah. move ahead <laughs> Um, her friends were quick to, to treat her like in the field and brought her to the local hospital where she was, uh, where she went through several surgeries to save her foot. She would undergo months of hospital care due to her foot developing gangrene several times, eventually Oof. requiring complete amputation. For several months, her leg was a bit of touch and go, uh, but she finally recovered and was given a rudimentary wooden leg. So she's got a peg leg and wants to be a diplomat. So that's, that's cool. Over the next year or so, she had returned home. Um, she was obviously distraught and, like, really upset. Yeah, um, losing a limb's pretty rough. Yeah, and the phantom pain, too, is also, like, if... Eliminate the emotion of it, just the phantom pain by itself, I imagine, is fucking infuriating. Because I've heard that it's it feels like having, like, a white-hot itch on the tip of your toe, but your toe isn't there. Nothing to scratch there. Yeah, there's nothing to scratch. So, like, I can... I've got... Again, eliminating the emotionality of it, I... Fuck. That sucks. It, yeah, all around sucks. Yeah. Plus, you shot yourself in the leg with a shotgun, so it's... It, no, Nobody wins. <laughs> <laughs> um, over the next year or so, she had returned home, and after investing in a high-quality, handmade prosthetic, she had become proficient in its use. She named her wooden leg Cuthbert. Cuthbert. Cuthbert, which will come up later in the story. All right. I also wonder why she picked Cuthbert. It's it's a very proper name, you know. I feel like she's going to start smuggling shit in that eventually. I think she might have, but I, I don't remember. I know it's hollow, or it was hollow at any I mean, if you have a wooden leg and you... you and you're not smuggling with it? That seems kind of... Yeah, you should at least have a little, little pint of whiskey in there or something. Something, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so... She named her wooden leg Cuthbert. By November of 1934, 11 months after her 
uh, her accident, she inquired again to the State Department to return to work. She wanted to be stationed in Venice, France. While in Venice, quote, she did not ask for and was not granted special dispensation regarding her workload. Only the occasional flashes of temper, often the mark of somebody facing intolerable frustrations, hinted to outsiders as to her anguish. She tried to disguise her disability with long strides, although even in the flat-heeled shoes she was now obliged to wear, a rolling gait became more apparent when she became tired. So that that makes sense. Yeah, it's definitely going to affect it, and you can try to try to make up for it and look normal when you're doing something like that when i think you know because it is the 20s and 30s i think there is that like that mentality of like nobody can know that i'm actually mentally distraught ever if i talk about my mental health or physically distraught (laughs) you want to hide your disability there wasn't any kind of ada back then to help you out no for sure it, it, it yeah anyway um so now so far we're in 1934 world war one has ended oh there it is i forgot about that Uh, the rise of the strongman fascist powers in europe and asia have already begun when virginia gets to uh, venice france fucking franco (laughs) in italy we're actually just gonna talk about mussolini in Italy, the fascist black shirts led by Benito Mussolini have ceased power in Italy. Stalin is currently starving millions of Ukrainian people under his totalitarian communist regime. And Hitler has just wrested power from the, per- the German parliament, effectively becoming the, air quotes, temporary leader of Germany. In a couple of years, 1936, Spanish fascist Francisco Franco is declared the dictator of Spain and parts of Africa. And all of this is happening in the background of our story today. So things are good in Europe. Things are pretty good. Things are going well. It's also really nice that things have only gotten better in Europe. So that's pretty cool. Um, This doesn't... Also, there's... None of this can reflect into modern day's age. Like, we don't have any parallels today because we learn our lessons really well. So that's... Oh, yeah. We'd never yeah. repeat history. That we, would... That that would... Yeah. What would that even look, look, look Which like? Which is why this story is so interesting because it's what people in the past have done and we've since learned not to do that. And, and so we'll we're never like, do it again. Never do it again. We learned our lesson. We've promised. From the first one. <laughs> why that first one is the war to end all wars we swear we'll never do another never world war again any more wars again to my knowledge <laughs> um virginia spends over a little two years at her post in venice when in 1936 she applies to become a diplomat again but she's immediately turned down on the bias of a quote obscure rule barring amputees from diplomacy end quote oof yeah what the what yeah. <laughs> i figure figure making be- <laughs> Well, and like certain people were excluded from that rule if they had just lost a finger or something like that. But like they fucking threw the book at her when it came to her one being a woman and two having her leg cut off. So, so to be a diplomat, you need all your let's. It's pretty fucked up. Well, and like when people, and this is going to be kind of a reoccurring theme, but when people think that like oppression never happened and like it like i don't know sexism ableism that those things are just things that people say it's like no these were real things that were actually put into fucking policy like these weren't things that people felt which it is things that people felt too but like when you put them into policy it becomes systemic racism oh yeah or ableism or yeah and that 
still lasts into this day, and we see no, no, no. echoes of it. It clearly said there's no parallels to today, so we should move on. <laughs> um, and, you know, she can't do this because she's an amputee, and this pisses Virginia off. Uh, she spends the next few years appealing to everyone who will listen and eventually even getting the ear of Teddy Roosevelt, but to no avail. Uh, most likely a punishment for Virginia having stirred the metaphorical pot. She's now removed against her will from her station in Venice, France, and I cannot overemphasize how much she loves France. To Tallinn, Estonia, where she uh, is disturbed to be greeted with the same fanatical uh, nationalist fervor. Quote, the low-grade work, however, bored her. She was answering the phones and filing papers when Europe was spinning towards war, and she was watching with horror as the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain met Hitler in Munich in September 1938 and talked of peace for our time. Oof. <laughs> Big oof. Big oof. Which is also, like, the thing that I was, like, reading this book made me feel. It's like... You can feel this avalanche ball slowly rolling down this hill towards you. It just, it's all oof, dude. <laughs> the whole thing. Um, in Estonia, Virginia found a similar story to much of the west of, of oh, I just read that part. Uh, political parties were banned. Uh, oh, no, hold on. Virginia found a similar story to the rest of Europe. Nationalist fervor had taken over there, too. Uh, in Estonia, political parties were banned. The press was censored. And, uh, Potential foreign names were recharacterized to sound Estonian. Fearful of the future, all hopes of promotion dashed, pigeonholed as a disabled woman of no importance, wink, wink. Uh, she resigned from the State Department in March 1934. Oh, actually, that was all within the quote of the book. Anyway, uh, after she quit, she spent a few months leisurely, most likely drinking in cafes and you know, wine and chatting with people and the like, because She's in France. She fucking loves this place. You know, she's just having the fucking. Yeah, it's just time what you do. Life. Yeah, baguettes, the wine. But ba- <laughs> I wonder how many. <laughs> I wonder how offensive we can make this episode to the <laughs> to the French. I. Pepe Le Pew. I I have a bit, <laughs> but it, it's fine. Uh, anyway, when Nazi Germany invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939, it shocked much, much of France, which we're going to steer away from my script for just a little bit. Do you know about the Maginot Line? Yeah. Yeah. So it was built like 10 years before the invasion of the Germans. And it was built, do you know why? To, to keep out the Germans. Keep out the Germans. And <laughs> Do you know what they, they did? They, they went around. They just went around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I love that they just... I don't know. Another great example of a wall doing its job. It's just such an interesting story because walls, this always happened with walls. People are just going to go around it, you know, or over <laughs> it, or they're going to blow a hole in it, you know, like, anyway. I just thought it was very funny because as I was learning more about World War II, I was like, wait, they built a wall that was ineffective? No. Shit. Well, and also, I think the French had kind of gotten like a little lackadaisical when they were patrolling of the wall they were like ah they're not gonna do that and I think as well it was to force them into the position of going around and being like okay we can concentrate our forces on these points that they would go around yeah but it just didn't do very good well in there because they relied on the idea that like the Ardennes which is like between Belgium and France like if you went around the uh, Maginot line you would have to go through the Ardennes forest their thoughts were like, the forest is too thick. They're not going to be able to make it through that. 
and they were just like they just kind of sailed into France through it. It's um, yeah, they underestimated the power of their terrible meth meth head neighbor. They did indeed. Yes, I mean, fucking a bunch of fancy looking, jacked up Germans and Dude, on meth, just Panzer rolling through your forest is one of my favorite things that I learned about like the methamphetamine addiction of the German army was the uh, fucking Panzer Chocolat. Yeah, which was just like it was like Hershey's with fucking I think either literal methamphetamine or benzedrine in it. But either way, it just it, <laughs> it was at least an analog, if not actual methamphetamine. <laughs> It's and just, when we think about zing. well and when we think about like why all these decisions were made in the early 1900s it's like everybody was fucking on meth there's just, so just much, everybody was the pharma we the, just discovered it the companies out there was like look at this new thing it makes you really excited you can get man, so much done man i feel so good we should invade france are you having trouble getting your house your, your house chores done at home do you need to invade poland really quickly try meth do you need a pep um anyway um don't one, don't by the way don't if you're don't listening do don't try to mess um wanting to do more virginia spent the next few months trying to get aside to a uh volunteer detachment of the british army however she was an american a foreigner and so she wasn't allowed to sign up for the british army so that I, that kind of makes sense to me um so in february of 1940 virginia was back in france and had just signed on to be an, a volunteer ambulance driver so that's cool. Yeah, yeah go the Hemingway route. We know she could descent some skunks, so that's you know, maybe she can descent some humans. I, I don't. Go ahead. Is that is that an option? <laughs> uh, shortly after Germany would invade Belgium, and shortly after that, Germany would again invade France. Um, as the war created many injured persons, Virginia Virginia's job became more hectic. Uh, she would spend most of her days driving uh, wounded from the battlefield to treatment centers. As the war raged on, hospitals were replaced by barns. Beds were replaced by, by hay. Um, even Virginia, as an official ambulance driver for the French military, would end up having to beg for few, uh, fuel, food, and sleeping where and when she could. Um, how long did she... How long did she do that? Yeah. Um... She did it for a couple of months. I I don't have the exact number here, but I I want to say it was close to eight nine months because she joined. Charles she, de Gaulle got kicked out and had to dip out for a while. We're gonna get to that here in a second. Uh, yeah. So we're we're just before that. We're still at the end of um. We're still kind of in like February nineteen forty. So, um. Uh, here we go. Yeah, by June. June 22nd, 1939, the French government had left France ahead of the Blitzkriegs, and the provisional government, headed by Marshal Pétain, uh, had signed an armistice with Hitler, effectively creating Nazi-occupied France's Vichy government. Having seen... So this is where, like, de Gaulle is getting out of there. And, yeah. And, and yeah. yeah. Uh, so having seen the French she loved so dear fall under literal Nazi leadership... Uh, uh, their lies, their deception, their brutality. Virginia's heart had broken, and fearing the outcome of Nazi-occupied France, she decided to head back to Spain via, uh, rather, head to Britain via Spain because she's got a. It's okay, trains and I, shit at that. point. I was yeah. about to say, if your choice to get away from the fascists in in France was to go to the fascists in Spain, that. <laughs> yeah, and I don't understand all the politics here, but Francisco Franco of Spain, the dictator there, he's got some sort of like 
chill, like semi-permeable they, line with France and and like uh, an association with Britain still. Because um, they kind of stayed neutral throughout the whole conflict. They were having their own own things going on yeah. at that point in time, there, and weren't too too keen on getting into World War Two. Yeah, exactly. Which is like, I don't know that I would describe fasc- a fascist government as a neutral party, but they certainly weren't engaged in in the war at the yeah. Point. I, I, I don't think, think if anything, it was. I think if anything, it was economic engagement. Yeah, that's probably right. Uh, so in Spain, um, George Bellows. So we got a new character on the scene. George Bellows was keenly aware of his organization's plot. Since the invasion of France, British intelligence had lost nearly all of its contacts in France. And it was his job to be keeping an eye on all the comings and goings of the small border town of Irun, Spain. Uh, in Irun, he came into contact with a, quote, glamorous American, end quote. Having struck a, con- a conversation, he had gathered uh, she was heading from Spain to Portugal by train, uh, which should give her access to trips to Britain, where she would then return to Maryland. He introduced himself as a salesman who might be able to help her to, to get where she was going, and in return, learned her name was Virginia Hall. During their conversation, she was able to re- relay detailed information to Bellows, recounting the conditions after the invasion, food shortages, even describing her time as an ambulance driver. Listening to her astonishing acts under fire, he quickly became impressed with her. Her impassioned rhetoric about wanting to assist, assist the French, uh, the French in fighting back convinced George Bellows to make an incredible decision. As she went to leave, quote, he slipped the number of uh, he slipped her the phone number of a friend in london who could help her find uh who could help her find her find her a worthwhile new role and urge her to call him on her arrival so call this guy and we'll you know um continuing to quote even if the state department did not appreciate her qualities bellows knew he had just had just encountered an exceptional force end quote so this guy george bellows is like holy f- Fuck, this woman is amazing. Hot crackers! Oh! <laughs> extra, extra, read all about it. This lady's dope. <laughs> and yeah, he's he's like, she's working for the for the State Department of the United States and is obviously underappreciated. I'm going to give her this fucking card, so. It's also like, the first time anyone's given this woman a chance. <laughs> so that's... Somebody saw her potential and was like, oh shit, we need to recruit. Yeah, for sure. See... Winston Churchill had just ordered the creation of the Special Operations Executive, the SOE, which will that's how we'll be referring to it, which was British uh, Britain's intelligence arm that would later evolve into MI6. George Bellows had slipped Virginia the number to a senior officer in the French section, or F section, of the SOE. Early spies were typically trained to be, quote, more special forces than spies, end quote, and that's what Churchill had personally demanded. The new SOE was to, quote, set Europe ablaze, end quote, with sabotage, subversion, and subterfuge. So, all those good S words. All the good S words. Uh, SOE's initial job was to just get some fucking dudes into France to establish uh, intelligence networks. Eventually, occupied France might assist from the inside when the world began the outside of invasion for its own like liberation so le resistance yeah le resistance um but the problem was soe was struggling to find men able and willing to do the work 
because you got to have strong men out there. Like, there's no, there's no good men. What are you supposed to do? Their penises really make for like good lie detectors, you know, pointing the direction of truth. So it's like, what are we to do? <laughs> it's a, that would be awkward. <laughs> Somebody's just revealing a real deep truth, and you're just like, I'm sorry, it just. It just gravitates towards that's the a, truth. I'm like Pinocchio, and that's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's just, it, this whole era is so amazing to me, because I guess we live 100 years later, so it's supposed to be, like, kind of dumbfounding to us, but, like, this is, we deal with similar shit here in this day and age. Oh, so yeah, the misogyny is strong. <sighs> it's crazy. Anyway, uh, for a few months, Virginia had forgotten about the number and decided against going to Maryland and instead worked for a few months at the State Department in Britain. Having been in France during the invasion, she was initially asked to type reports about what she knew. However, um, after a few weeks, she returned to secretary work. So they, they debriefed her. They were like, what did you see in France? What was going on in there? Yeah, okay, now, we got all the information cool, we can now, get from you. Get now, could you take some halt calls for us? <laughs> we need some coffee, man. Can you know how to make coffee, dear? Mrs. Ha Miss Hall, we need coffee in the conference room. Yeah, not <laughs> no, a good use of her time. Not a good use of her time. Especially because she's so she's showing just so much. She's good at this, you know? It's fucking crazy. And as you're reading the book, you're like, what the fuck is happening? What the, why is everybody she's got that flair that pizzazz sure, that jean i say quoi jean, jean i say quoi <laughs> i like pronouncing uh words badly in other languages <laughs> queero una anyway it's about the best i can do yeah um lo siento yeah so she was returned to uh to secretary work once again she changed her mind about working as the secretary and upon inquiring for a passage to the u.s learned that she was no longer a priority to uh to the the state department uh to return during wartime because she had not had been had been employed by them for a whole year so they're like we'll get to you when we can you're not officially a part of our organization anymore you're just a secretary pretty fucked up so instead she spends uh christmas of 1940 in britain stuck in britain she pulled out the phone number given to her by uh in spain by george george bellows and when she rang the number, on the other end was Nicholas Boddington, a former uh, correspondent for Reuters. She had, at that moment, not been aware of Nicholas's real job. He was desperately trying to establish an infiltration network in France for six months. Each and every man that he had sent in had ultimately failed to do so, either by, like, dying or going to prison or something. Penises kept pointing in the wrong places. Yeah. Well, and also, we're going to get into this. They just, a lot of them are just fucking. And a lot of these people just, like... Anyway, we'll get to it. Go ahead. Uh, she, to each and every man that she that he had sent had ultimately failed to establish anything. Virginia impressed Boddington with her passion and her already established network of friends in France. Because remember, she's lived there. You know, she's got friends and she's charming as fuck. So, um, being an American provided an amazing cover too. Uh, they wouldn't have to airdrop her into France, which was like really dangerous because of you know, falling out of the sky. Um, and also, Americans were neutral in the war at this point. So an American journalist is just there to see what's going on. Um, this meant she could take the trains from Spain back into France nearly unbothered. She would adopt a uh, cover as a journalist, which was helpful because she had, you know, been a journalist. She was the editor-in-chief editor in high school. Um, 
Her multilingualism helped them make their decisions as well. They vetted her excessively, extensively, rather, looking for any German connections. And even before the results came back, they were exciting at having acquired such a catch. So these these people have no other like that. All the men that could be possible candidates are either dead or unqualified. So they're like, I guess I guess a woman would do. So they we'll just had a bunch do. of Brits that they're like, okay, chap, go in there and make yourself some friends. That's basically exactly it. They're like, get in there and, I don't know, do do something. Well, and also, nobody had ever done this shit before. So they don't really know what they're doing. They're just airdropping people in there and being like, I don't know, make, make them fight the Nazis. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so um, they were excited to have such a uh, catch. She was an amazing candidate, but she was all... She was also currently their only candidate to establish a network in France. Made no other really good candidate. Yeah, they had no other people with penises, so uh, they decided to go with Virginia. Um, as the primary and singular member of F section, her job would be that uh, would be one that no one had ever done before. It would be dangerous, but for the adventurous Virginia, uh, she had finally felt acknowledged for her abilities as the first female liaison officer, which was kind of her like official title. Um, the first and only agent of F section, she resigned from her job at the State Department and began training for her new job, the job of ungentlemanly warfare. And with that, we're going to take a little break. All right. We'll be back we're getting to the ungentlemanly warfare. Un- it sounds like a woman's probably the right right person what? for the job for <laughs> ungentlemanly warfare. <laughs> when you put it together like that, I didn't, I didn't really realize how perfectly that does work. Because yeah. it's like... Where gentlemanly warfare was like what um, I don't know, fucking uh, Wilhelm the the second did, you know, when he tried to invade Europe fucking during World Wilhelm. War One. Which Wilhelm? You know, There's so many Wilhelm. Wilhelm the second. Okay, the guy with the little arm started World War One essentially because he was like, I want to see what these toy soldiers can do. And anyway, I'm forgetting my oh my point was that like that was considered gentlemanly warfare to send hundreds of thousands of people in like formations to just run into each other yeah on the you, you stand in a square and yeah. you shoot at each other right. from across the field you guys and then we send volley. cavalry it reminds me of those whitest kids you know a uh, sketch where the, where like the the british are being shot by the americans and they're like all right you guys did a volley it's our turn bang it's a- you killed another one of our guys you're supposed to be standing in the field yeah Anyway, we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we're going to see Virginia deploy. All righty, break time. We're back. Hello. At Place de la Bourge in Lyon. The Bourge place? Uh, Place de la Bourge. Uh, B-O-U-R-S-E. I don't speak French, so it's probably pronounced wrong. Borsi. The Borsi. <laughs> At Place de la Borsi in Lyon, uh, Virginia quickly sussed out uh, American Vice Consul George Whittinghall and charmed him into being recruited. Um, although she was, like, she was outwardly neutral. Um, he would pro- provide an excellent service by forwarding messages to and from SOE in large quantities to Virginia. So, she's in Lyon. And she goes to the, the consulate. She goes to, like, the, the ambassadors and people that are there. She talks to Whittinghall. And she's like, hey, I need to get information out of France. Is this uh, American ambassador? Where, this is where an is American the, ambassador, sorry. In, in the French embassy or in, the 
quote unquote French. Em- the, the, embassy. Well, this is a legitimate French en- embassy in Lyon. Um, but yeah, so she she immediately gets to um, France. She's deployed now. She's trying to 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 do this um, to establish this this spy network. You know what I mean? And she uh she just goes to the American ambassador ambassador. No, it's Vice Consul George Whittinghall anyway. <clears throat> and is like, hey, could you help me uh run packages out? And he's got this thing called a diplomatic pouch that is sensitive paperwork that gets sent out. So Virginia just immediately goes there after being dropped off, talks to him, and has immediately established contact with with one person. Finds so, a guy with a nice uh, sensitive pouch. Yeah. And and again, he would provide an excellent service uh, forwarding messages to and from SOE in large quantities to Virginia. Um, this was beneficial to her quickly growing networks, um, but parachute drops of supplies and radio officers uh operators rather were difficult to coordinate through such slow communication lines because it's literally writing letters sticking it in a a pouch it has to go across seas and then in Lyon, it goes mostly to uh, switzerland then the person in switzerland has to radio back to britain soe's headquarters to send virginia's message then they have to send the message back to switzerland to pass through george whittinghall to get to Virginia. So there's a huge process a to all process. of this. <laughs> but, but that's one of the things when you're doing cell dynamics and, and that kind of espionage type subversion sort of thing, you have to kind of find a balance between security and communications. Yeah, for sure. Well, and this is, as, as you brought up, this is slow, but it's effective and secure, you know. Um, there was only two radio operators in all of France at this time. One was being, quote, overworked and monopolized, uh, end quote, by another field agent, Lucas. Um, This was 200 miles away, while the other one had been captured immediately after parachuting in. (laughs) Oof. (laughs) Codename Christophe had been knocked unconscious during his landing, then immediately captured by the French police, who were, you know, basically Nazis at this point. Yeah, it's the... The Vichy France police. So, yeah, yeah. They're, they're collaborators very much. I would argue that they just are Nazis, but we, we're not going to have that argument here. <laughs> um, things had looked bad for him until a sudden release by Nazi high command, which, in hindsight, should have been a signal for things to come. So these thin blue lion cats... Uh... Go ahead. And, and ended up... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, so, so ended up immediately capturing old boy. Well, in in like it seems like he parachuted out of the sky and just like smacked into a tree or something like that, and it was just oh, biffed the landing. Know. Did he biffed it real hard and then woke up to being arrested by police? I hate so. when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Virginia's um Virginia's expanding network uh, resistance network was growing nearly every day, especially when she received two more shipments of agents and supplies. October 10th, 1941, Virginia's network was to receive four agents, money, weapons, and explosives. Three of the operators were met by their welcome parties, um, while one had been dropped a few miles off course, was knocked out as he landed on a rock, and was found the next morning by Vichy police. Again, they discovered him with most of the inbound supplies, and in his pocket, they found a map showing the location of a safe house in Marseille. Marseille? Marseille? I forget how to pronounce that right now. Marseille. It's fine. They, anyway, we... um, the, the safe house was called Villa Dubois, which we're going to 
come back to a couple of times. So remember that. Um, so they had found a map showing the location of it. Um, quote, where Kristoff had been holed up since his release. So this is another agent who is holed up. They should have ate that map. Yeah, this is the guy who was arrested and then released for no reason. So there's... They found the map of where he is now. Um, And continuing the quote, it was just one one of a number of leads now in in police possession that all led to the address on the outskirts of the French port, end quote. One radio operator, codenamed Big... B E G G U E. I'm I'm just gonna call him Big. 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 I don't know. Bleh. Anyway, Bleh. he was overworked as the only operator of five fledgling resistant cells in Chateau Rue, and with the Nazis' new radio detection vehicles, it was only a matter of time before his transmissions would inevitably inevitably get him caught. So Big reached out to Kristoff, with the only other uh, who is with the only other operator, radio operator in France. Christophe then reached out to all the other agents in France, calling them to meet at Villa Dubois in Marseille. Oh, that sounds like a bad choice. It sounds like a bad choice. Also suspicious because Christophe has been arrested and then released. But You don't know what the homie did to get out that quick. Yeah, and Sonia Purnell, the person who wrote uh, A Woman of No Importance, she doesn't really add any, like, she doesn't know why this happened. She just kind of theorizes a couple of things. And it's like, it's either because they wanted to feel like camaraderie because they were isolated and, and they didn't, they couldn't have real relationships because they're fucking spies and shit. Um, or it could also be because some of them were starving and broke. Because remember, you airdrop into France and then you're supposed to find, uh, at this point, the new people are supposed to find the people that are already there. But it's, 19 fucking 30s 1940s at this point it's you don't you can't cell phone call people you know you just got to go with like word of mouth and shit like that so you know a lot of them could have been like starving and broke and looking to pick up cash um some may have been looking to exfiltrate but whatever the reason um many decided to come virginia did not though the first to arrive had called with no answer so the, the first person to arrive called villa dubois nobody answered the phone um uh, that person overlooked that fact and went over anyway. The agent also ignored the neighbor, who said that Christophe had been acting kind of strange lately. He also seemed to have missed the 20 or so police officers that lay in the bushes along the walkway next to the door. <laughs> yeah, you gotta look for the cops in the bushes by the door. That's how they get you. Uh, when the door opened, the French counterism terror unit, the Sout, uh Spelled S-U-R-E-T. I might be pronouncing it wrong, but I think it's soot. Let's go with soot. So maybe it's the soutre. Le soutre. Anyway, um, uh, the soutre arrested him. Soon after, five more were arrested at Villa Dubois, which led to further arrests ac- across Chateau Roux and uh, Antibes. Again, not a not a French person. Antibes. Dubois. Uh, Big, one of the last radio operators in all of free France, was arrested. Quote, virtually all of its most promising agents and both of its free zone wireless operators were behind bars and facing the prospect of weeks of torture, followed by firing squad. Most had not even started their secret work, end quote. (laughs) Rough. So the thing that Virginia needs right now, she needs what are called pianists. That's their code name for a radio operator. Okay. If she can get a pianist in 
France, then she can secure her her intel to to SOE without having it take. I think sometimes weeks. You know, do the whole take a ship to Sweden type thing. Yeah, and so Virginia arrives. She's like establishing her thing. She's got a couple of people that she vaguely knows and can connect with, and then boom, they're all gone. So, not looking really good. Oh, got pinched by the one who snitched. Yeah. Well, I think he did, but I don't know that Sonia Purnell goes as far as to officially there, say that. There's no official it, record of yeah, that being happening. He could have just got like caught at the house, and they're like, hey, we're just going to hold a gun to your head and be like, tell them to do this, well, or we shoot you. And he told him, and then he shot him anyway. Well, and we're going to learn that a lot of the fuck-ups are just incompetence. But oftentimes, incompetence is hard to distinguish from subterfuge. Cunning. Yeah, and so it could be that he was just lonely, and that's why Christophe summoned everybody to Villa de Bois. It, that there's a lot of reasons for a lot of this stuff, and it's just... It seems like a simple fuck-up that was easily avoidable, or it could be intentional. Who knows? A few days later, André Bloch... Another SOE wireless operator had been arrested by the outing of his neighbor for the crime of, and get this, quote, looking like a Jew. <laughs> Ooh. And, like, it's really hard to hear because it it, it hurts. Yeah. But it's just so funny that that, like, I, I, I can't believe... That that's a thing that existed and still exists. So as far as talking about snitches, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, she's just... Doesn't he very much look like a Jew? I don't know. It's, we were drinking, he said like I'm, yeah, and <laughs> I don't know about this one. Um, but yeah, after his neighbor outed him, the Gestapo obviously searched his place because he looked like a Jew. And they found his wireless radio with zeal. They tortured him, and without getting in any information, they uh, they sent him to the firing squad. He had been the only operator in all of occupied France. When and when coupled with the arrests at Villa Dubois, this meant that all of France without was without a, a single radio operator. So this guy, at was, least a one that was friendly to the Allies. Exactly. Yeah. Very much so. I assume the Germans had them. Uh, yes, very much so. <laughs> also, the Germans aren't being like stalked and murdered yet by uh by any french people so there's no need to like if you're a radio operator on the german side you pretty you feel pretty comfortable in france yeah you're in a good position the meth has got you going that's true and <laughs> the radio operating duties only take a part of your time yeah and you can go howl at the moon the other part yeah i was gonna be much more vulgar but howl at the moon's the polite, <laughs> the polite way to say <laughs> Um, after 15 months of training, preparation, and infiltration, a dozen uh, a dozen agents uh, sorry, after 15 months of training, preparation, and infiltration, and a dozen agents lost, SOE now quote was left, and this is a quote inside a quote, with little else in the field except Miss Virginia Hall and the inside quote. Only she had the means of contacting Baker Street. Only she had a growing circuit uncontaminated by the arrests. Only she was supplying vital information on Vichy and the Nazi occupiers. The future of Allied intelligence in France now rested on a solitary woman who had been written off for most of her adult life. So she was just killing it at the spy Dude. thing. Well, pretty much the entire she Allied. She was just the only competent one. I think <laughs> she was the only one who could do the 
freaking job. Yeah. And do it what like cuz they trained her a little bit, right? They they taught her like a little bit of like how to disguise yourself or like try to look like other people, but nobody had ever done this shit before. So like again, she's she's the that they rely on. They send her to France because she's the only person available to be sent there. And she just so happens to not have a penis. And then she gets there and then the entire network that she's trying to establish just erodes and it's just her left. And so it, it's, it, this woman is amazing. But she's already got contacts and people going on in places back and forth. She spent time in France. She's no knows what's going on. Yeah. And she's already got that charm and charisma and a spy and a diplomat really aren't that different once you get down to it well and they could be interchangeable you know what i mean yeah so and also one thing i realized that i've left out of the out of the story is like when she first lands um she immediately goes to a and maybe i'll actually get to this here in a minute but anyway she as soon as she lands she goes to a monastery and establishes or a nunnery is the term that i use for it a convent convent nun shop yeah nun shop uh she goes there and establishes that as her first safe house so that's pretty cool she goes like i'm poor i need help it's a good habit how dare you (laughs) 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 that's pretty good anyway the reason that's important is because we're going to get to some of who some of her contacts are here in a second um so she was uncontaminated by arrests and she was you know she was now the person in charge of everything and she was soon introduced to a brothel owner, Germain Grien. Grien? G-U-R-E-I-N. I don't know. Um, who was described as having a gypsy warmth. Um, she had a home full of tapestries, chests full of gold, uh, black cats, and just like a little kitten that would always follow her around. So she's... For the 1940s, she's definitely... This oh, she had kitties. And wait, hold on. A box full of fucking gold? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wait, what? Can we go back to that for one second? Um, because um, that's like... Germaine Gurien, uh, Gurien, who had a gypsy warmth and a home full of tapestries, chests of gold, black cats, and a little kitten that followed her around. Also, she was a brothel owner, so... All right. Yeah. Um, I also assumed that she lived in a in the genie's bottle for my dream of genie, because uh, <laughs> like that's kind of the vibe that she gives off. <laughs> much more French and much more smoky. You know what I mean? Um, so you got your two bases covered. You got the the contact of the convent and yeah. the one at the whorehouse. Got the nunnery and the whorehouse. You got to cool. keep it even. Yeah. It's she definitely does that. Um. Jermaine and Virginia were wary of each other at first, but over time they eventually found each other charming. They both flirted with danger, hated the feeling of fear, and both, quote, had a wicked sense of humor, end quote. Wicked, bro. Yeah, whack I did. But just reminds me of fucking Marky Mark. <laughs> the bo- it's Boston the Bostonian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fucking wicked sweet, bro. It's fucking you wicked. Gotta, I, I can't do it right. I'm not you got a wicked sense of adventure. It's fucking wicked. Uh, although originally not wanting to participate in a foreign network of agents, you know, because she's French, um, Jermaine was eventually won over by Virginia's charm. Her, her girls had access to all varieties of high-end bureaucrats, French police, uh, German officers, Vichy officials, uh, officials, and businessmen alike, and would report to Jermaine anything that was uh, Germain. <laughs> 
<laughs> Get out. I know this is your house, but you need to leave. <laughs> I even wrote in parentheticals. Ha, 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 ha. But seriously, you should go. This would extend Virginia's... <laughs> This would extend Virginia's network into official Nazi lines. This, along with the nuns at the nunnery, which I'm choosing to call it, uh, made Virginia's heckler <laughs> network touch both sides of the morality spectrum, if you believe in that sort of thing. Yeah, keep them balanced. Also, I forgot to mention this, because there's SOE. SOE is the French section. French section is working, to, or the F section is working to create the resistance. Within the resistance, Virginia's network is called the heckler network. And that is fucking sweet, dude. I've known some fine hecklers in my day. I want to start a band called the Heckler Network and just do really, really just politically left wing. <laughs> just subversive yeah. as. Um, finally, with Germain's support, Virginia um, had, had reinforced to the SOE in Britain that her Heckler Network was still blossoming and she was thoroughly established now. Virginia's quote, Tart friends, as she called them, um, as she called the, the sex workers at the at Germain's brothel, would, at the behests of Germain, rifle through their clients' pockets, photographing paperwork, uh, photographing paperwork that looked important. They would spike their clients' drinks, loosening their lips. In some cases, tart friends would introduce their drunk clients to a quote sniff of heroin, thereby getting them addicted and rendering them, in several cases, unfit for duty. The heroin also. <laughs> that is the first time I've heard good news about heroin in my life. I think <laughs> it's always bad with that stuff. It's but like, bad. what a but fine it, it, use of heroin. I think we can all agree that fuck the Nazis, and stuff, <laughs> giving them heroin. And, but it gets actually better, Swan, because okay, the heroin, so speedballing Nazis. So the the heroin actually fucks with your eyesight, apparently. So like. I, I think over time it deteriorates your vision. And so eventually this would render several German pilots unable to fly ever again. Yay. So that's, that's, like, <laughs> that's so awesome. Why is nobody talking about her? <laughs> Taking out the Luftwaffe from the fucking ground. That's, yeah, when I read that I was like, that has to be That's amazing. Heroin, the anti-carrot. <laughs> Turns out heroin's Antifa. <laughs> anyway, Virginia would soon win over a Dr. Jean Rousset, who became uh, who came into the fold of X, uh, F section. Uh, he was a doctor, obviously, that would treat uh, sex workers in his gynecology and dermatology practice. So he had a building and shit, too. In some cases, he would give sex workers infected with STIs a clean bill of health and send them off to infect as many Nazis and Nazi sympathizers as possible. And by the way, he did this, from what I can tell, with their consent. So he was like, hey, you got syphilis. In two weeks, it'll be irreversible. I don't know how some of these diseases work. But he's like, in two weeks, it'll be irreversible. Go fuck as many Nazis as you can. And then come back to me in two weeks and I'll give you... We got penicillin, but first, could you bang some yeah. Nazis? Dude, and it is... God damn it, it is so fucking genius, man. That's the first good thing I've heard about syphilis, too. <laughs> <laughs> you bring some surprising things that done good things in history. Yeah, yeah, like, I, I thought the connotations are always negative, but... Yeah, turns out sex workers are Antifa, too. <laughs> I mean, we all knew that. God um, bless the troops. Yeah, so this wound up infecting several. 
Jesus Christ one. <laughs> so this wound ended up uh, infecting several dozen German soldiers, or rather, you know, this infection, um, who would need to seek immediate treatment. To top it off, Virginia's tart friends would put itching powder in the soldiers' clothes, increasing their distress. Yay, mild shenanigans! <laughs> they're, called, they're called the Heckler Network. It's awesome. Um... Dr. Usay would eventually set up a, a fake insane asylum on the top floor of his practice to act as a safe house for F section. Oh, that is a good cover yeah, right that's there. A really, good <laughs> that's a really good one. Of course, snitching, uh, stitching together a secretive resistance group was difficult with uh, everyone on the same team. Um, sorry, let me read that again. Yeah, with everyone already on the same team. Uh, she made it clear, though, despite any group's feud with the other, they would all have to work together together. Uh, through Virginia's Heckler Network, and that their unity came from the idea of French liberation. They would uh, they would have to work with all types of, quote, resistance, uh, parenthetical, adult, youth, Catholic, Protestant, Jew, non-believer, man, or woman, that would be able to work together with her liaising between them. So she's like, I don't give a fuck who you are. I don't care what you represent. If you're willing to take orders from me, we can work together. No, fuck them. You don't have to work with them. You work with me. Solidarity and uniting for yeah. the most noble of purposes. Killing Nazis, baby. Yeah. <laughs> no more noble. <laughs> no more noble <laughs> of purpose. Um, because the, the setbacks uh, such negotiations would require, Virginia was always working. She uh, was eventually able to infiltrate the Soutre, uh, the French anti-terrorism unit that had she captured. in the soot. Yeah, she got the soot. Uh, you know, the guys that had captured the agents at Villa du Bois. Getting really down and dirty now. Yeah, down and dirty. Uh, her heckler network. Sooty. As t- <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> her heckler network, as tangible as it was to her, was but an abstract object of success that she was semi-constantly trying to keep under her per- supervision. So she... Anyway. Another agent, <laughs> Georges du Dubodin... I'll spell the last Dubodine. name. Dubodine. Okay. I don't know if that's how it's pronounced. I'm but just. It, you put a little French on it, so that's how we're going to pronounce it. Dubodin. Dubodin. Uh, George's Dubodin, uh, codename Elaine, was several years who, her junior. Uh, one of the agents to have avoided the De Villa Dubois trap, Elaine was, in short, constantly jealous of the successes of Virginia. His network was weak and nearly non existent, and he was, as Virginia saw it, quote, Timid and lazy, despite his claims, he had virtually no men, and uh, he had virtually no men, and certainly none properly prepared, properly trained or armed. End quote. I hate it when my men aren't properly trained. Yeah, me too. To him, a disabled woman being in control was of the largest espionage network. Um, it was like a constant wound to his pride. Uh, quote: While he swaggered around playing at being secret agent, Virginia worried that his bravado is becoming a major security problem for her and the entire <laughs> SOE edifice. <laughs> Just <laughs> So when I talked earlier about how she's going to have to deal with a lot of penisry, this is what I'm talking about. It keeps popping up. Ju- boom. <laughs> we might have to make a new joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, to his resentment, she frequently refused to allow him to access her network of contacts even going so far as to tell SOE headquarters of Baker Street to, quote, lay off when they suggested when they suggested Elaine should take command. It's, it's fucked up. 
he he went to the higher ups. And he, yeah, he, he was like, I should take over this network because you know, I'm I'm big boy. I mean, look at me. Do I have to pull my pants tight? You can see the outline of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Still, she was becoming well known by new agents entering France, and while the newer recruits were uh, better trained than her uh, than her when she was sent in. They still stumbled over trivial errors while speaking to a new recruit at like a, like a cafe, so they're in public and shit. Uh, the new recruit P- Peter Churchill, no relation. Uh, they enjoyed a lovely meal before he had used the French word Angleterre to to speak of Britain. She chastised him for the use, saying it was too conspicuous, and instead to use the phrase "at home" or "chez nous." So like, people were coming in making really simple mistakes and being like back in england where we send our intelligence she's like no no no, we don't say any of that no 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 you have to say she knew back home at home at home because that's a- that's ambiguous and for god's sake stop putting ketchup on everything we're about to get to that <laughs> <laughs> uh she knew another agent was captured uh by the gestapo when he stepped in front of a car having forgotten the direction one drives in france <laughs> <laughs> just driving down the wrong side of the road. Uh, Virginia taught newcomers newcomers to wipe their plates clean of gravy with their bread, like the French, uh, to not organize cutlery after a meal, which was very British, uh, or to bring a raincoat with them, which were, these were all like British behaviors. And so like getting to your point about the ketchup, she's like, stop putting ketchup on everything, you fucking reader. <laughs> you have to use seasoning. Fucking, really? Dude, food really? has flavor here. You're going to have to get used to that. Wipe I'm sorry. with bread. <laughs> <laughs> so even still during an, uh, during an afternoon, uh, Peter Churchill took a shortcut to meet Virginia. They had like planned a meeting. Um, and men identifying as Vichy police stepped out in the alleyway, and upon noticing uh, Churchill's thick wallet, they pointed it out to him. And they said that they were capturing people to take to Germany for the slave camp labor, and they could do that, or he could just give them his money. Which he did. Simultaneously, a few blocks away, Virginia was meeting with another agent, Olive. At that moment, and, you know, dur- during their conversation, Gestapo burst into the cafe doing a quirk camp roundup. The entire street had been blocked off. During the resultant arrest, um, a-, a senior police inspector took Olive and Virginia uh, to a back room and closed them in there. Kind of locked the door. Uh-oh. Yeah, so shit's not looking fucking good. It's a bad sign. As the customers in the cafe were being arrested and loaded into trucks out front, Virginia and Olive were able to slip out a small window. Olive would later reveal the opportunity was afforded to them because he had known the police inspector before the war. So, so the Gestapo, the Gestapo breaks in, they're arresting everybody in the thing, and this guy who Agent Olive knows since before the war comes up to him and is like, "You guys in the back room, get the fuck back! Come there. back here now, you!" No, they close it and locks it. I'm gonna question you guys myself. I'm gonna question you guys so hard. And they're like, hard. "Oh shit, what what's about to happen yeah. here?" And he's like, "Olive, remember me? Get the hell out of get here the right fuck now, out of here, dude. You got this. You guy. need to get the fuck- go. And if I have to come, you sit sit right there. I'm very mad at you guys." <laughs> <laughs> um. A week after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Virginia's cover as a journalist uh, would now afford her nothing. 
The U.S. had entered the war against Germany and Japan, and as such, American journalists were enemies to the you know the Nazis. Yeah, you're not supposed to be. Not, not, can you not see the the trouble there? <laughs> That's as good as my Jermaine joke. <laughs> um, being without a radio uh, and with the winter of forty, you know, nineteen forty one, forty two, setting in, airdrops would be more difficult because, like, it's the winter. Uh, frustrated, Lucas, another agent, had begun to the search for a radio operator under the idea that just because SOE doesn't have a radio operator doesn't mean someone else doesn't. Other like the United States and Britain aren't the only people trying to to infiltrate France. You know, maybe. Poland has got a, a a radio operator, an intelligence operator here. We could find these people, you know. Maybe they'll be on our team. Anyway, back to the, <laughs> to the script. Um, during his search, he came across Mathilde Car, or we're going to call her Le Chat, Le Chat, the cat. A woman Le Chat, Le Chat, Chat. Yeah, is it Le Chat? I I don't know. I've heard as far as I know about France. Monchat, Chat, Monchat, Monchat. Yeah. Okay, maybe that's right. As far as I know about the French language, you don't pronounce the last, like, eighth, the quarter. That's fair. We're, we're the, both so. just winging it here on yeah. the French language. <laughs> I just remember asking, someone asking if they if I wanted to see Monchat. Okay, so we're Monchat with a T. Um, a woman, you know, Le Chat. A woman of voracious sexual appetites, she made clear to Lucas that she uh, she had access to her former lover's radio. Her former lover was a Polish intelligence agent with the Interali. She said she'd be willing to help usher communications between him and SOE. After a few weeks, both Lucas and Baker Street were excited to have made contact with with each other. The non-commissioned officer of the Abwehr, Sergeant Hugo Bleicher, through whom all Lucas's me messages were going through, was also very happy. So, do you know what the Abwehr is? I have no clue, but it makes sense that the, the intelligence services from Poland would be pretty happy to be linking up with the intelligence services from, from yeah. England. We'll get into that here in just a second, but... um. The Abwehr is like, and we're going to get into this bigger story a little later, uh, but the Abwehr is military intelligence. So this is like one half of the German intelligence. They constantly compete against the Gestapo. So there's two intelligence networks we're going to be talking okay, about. Okay, so it's like the FBI but, and the CIA. Yeah, but German very, very and Nazi. At, so they're so, German. Yeah, so let me repeat that sentence real quick. The non-commissioned officer of the Abwehr, Sergeant Hugo Bleicher, through whom all Lucas's message were going through, was also very happy. <laughs> so this is a German service that was getting the messages as well. Yeah, they've... I mean, we're going to get into a little bit more, but... Oh, jeez. They've been infiltrated. Boom, boom, boom. Lucas is now working with the Germans and doesn't know about it. And so it had been for a few weeks until Lucas finally became suspicious. When confronted, uh, Lucas had learned that Le Chat had betrayed 70 of her comrades for 6,000 francs a month, her freedom and the information she could gather. Quote, Apparently without remorse, she had watched one after the other being carted off, most of them to their deaths. After a celebratory feast of pâté and champagne with Bleicher, Le Chat became his lover. Oh, no. <laughs> It's 
Not going good. <laughs> no, Lissette. No. Kitty, why? Now, after discovering this, Lucas could have and should have contacted Virginia to let her know that the best possible scenario was that her cover was compromised, while the worst possible scenario was that her arrest was incoming. Yeah. So he could have said any of this. However, Lucas decided to, to save his own skin first. Lucas's brain thought he would flip the shot's loyalty to London, so make a double agent into a triple agent, you know. Right. Um, Lucas and the SOE... Go ahead. Never mind. Lucas and the SOE could feed Bleicher misinformation, and the incredible liar Lachat had convinced Bleicher to allow her to go to London with Lucas. Lachat told him the Abwehr would have a spy within the SOE. Boom, boom, boom. Bum, bum, Uh-oh. So, Lucas is trying to get Lachat back to Britain, to the SOE, right? So they're going to do this through an exfiltration. And this exfiltration happened on February 12th, 1942. It was a moonless night. Lachat and another man, Calburn, a radio operator, were on the shores. So it's Lachat and Lucas and then another man, Calburn. And honestly, just really quick, there were so many names in this book that I had to pick just a few of them to include in this episode because it is the book itself is just so fucking dense. And so we have to like kind of pick and choose who we actually highlight with their names so as to not confuse a lot of people with a fuckload of names. That's so, fair. Yeah. Um, Especially when we can't pronounce any of them. Yeah. <laughs> when we're really bad at it. Um, so it was a moonless night. Lachat, Lucas, and another man, Calburn, a radio operator, were on the shores of Locriac as the SOE boat appeared for exfiltration. Surrounded by Abwehr agents who were hiding amongst the rocks, Lucas could see a naval officer aboard, along with two fresh radio operators that were inbound. So nobody knew that that the Abwehr were there, and people were trying to infiltrate radio operators into France. Um, when they disembarked, uh, Lucas quickly and quietly told them about the Abwehr agents surrounding them, and that any attempt to infiltrate infiltrate people at this moment would be disastrous. Lachat tried to climb aboard one of the boats, which was being battered by the sea. She fell and ended up soaking wet, having lost her luggage to the sea, which I think is really funny because I Lachat. If you go by the name Lachat, you're probably like dressed up in fine clothes and stuff. So like, I'm really glad that she ruined a bunch of clothes and lost her suitcase. That's also just more out of my imagination than anything else, though. That's fair. You just want the the little bit of shot shot and Freud exactly. in there yeah, yeah, yeah. of the the. Shot. What a good word. <laughs> but yeah, a little bit. It's like a just a little punch to the gut. It's not gonna yeah, kill the, him or the, anything. The but. appreciation of like this traitorous kitty cat person got got at least a little bit, at least fell in the water and had that episode of like ha ha <laughs> just, bitch. Just the, the what's his name? The the character from The Simpsons. Ha <laughs> ha Nelson. Nelson. <laughs> You know what, actually, he described Schadenfreude really well. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, somehow the two radio operators and uh, Royal Naval officers were unable to get back onto the boat. And after hours of trying, the seamen operating the boat had to turn back to the ocean around the same t- time that the Abwehr came out of their hidey holes. 
the naval officer realized that the British naval officer realized that he uh, he'd be treated well in his uniform, so he gave himself up. The two other radio operators were found a few days later, betrayed by farmers for money, and most likely shot. Oof. Ironically, Donald Dutton, codename Georges Thirty Five, and so many fucking names. Anyway, he had parachuted into France, desperately looking for Lucas. Uh, Dutton was a radio operator sent by SOE to make contact with him. He had arrived uh, at his location, or he had nearly been skewered by a vineyard as he had landed, and he had been greeted by barking dogs. Fearing police arriving to his location, he buried his radio and, and set off looking for his contact. Um, he had been wandering around France for a short while, like, I think it was a couple of months. So he'd been wandering around France uh, without food or money before he decided to head home. Luckily, Virginia's contacts had notified her that he was about to leave, and she was able to make uh, contact prior to his departure. It was an absolute priority to retain radio operators, but he had no radio. Prior to George Beeg's arrest at Villa Dubois, he had hidden his radio around Chateauroux, which was, just as an example, this is way closer than where Dunton had landed. So That's the same Chateauroux that, that came up earlier in the story, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's where um, that's where Beeg had airdropped. I, I believe he had airdropped there and established a network. And then right before he got arrested, he had buried his his radio. And where that was was closer than where um, Dunton had buried his. So okay. they're like, "Well, go go find that one," you know. <clears throat> um, and with that knowledge, he set off to find it. And a few days later, he had it. Lucas's mission to retain control of his situation, though, had floundered. So Lucas is still like, still with Lachat shit. Unable to reconcile his heirs, he, Lachat, and Cowburn uh, made for Paris with, quote, German minders in tow. And I don't know what that means. I assume that means they're being followed, but, you know, well. They're, they're being tracked. Yeah, that's kind of what it feels like to me. Um, in Paris, Cowburn knew that if Lucas's mistakes led to Virginia's capture, the SOE would be fucked. They would lose their most valuable, most committed, and most capable agent, as well as her, basically her entire network. Determined not to allow that happen, the real hero, Cowburn, peeled away from Lucas, Lachat, and their Nazi pursuers and made his way to Lyon, where Virginia was. Honestly, this episode should come with like an interactive map, because all these people were moving around so fucking much, it's hard to like keep track of where everyone is. And that's again like some of the issue that I like I had with like writing the story with like fuck there's so many places keeping and track and of shit. where Jesus everybody's Christ. going. Yeah. And the, it's France too, so it's not that big, <laughs> but there's like a million fucking places in it. But also like I'm not familiar with France, right? <laughs> like if the, you were if you were talking about California, he went from Chico to San Bernardino to fuck you know this and that. Like I would know generally where those places are in France. I had to literally like every time I hit a new place, look up the fucking look at it on the map. Learn your so, French geography a yeah. little bit, which was useful for the story. But if you guys at home are interested, it's kind of a fun wander. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so it was a grueling trip. Uh, the the one that Calburn's making, uh, marked by agents following him and trying to like clumsily strike up conversations. So they were just the Germans were really bad at trying to spy on him. He had to slip into large cloud uh, crowds and double back uh, to throw off pursuers. Five sleepless days later, he arrived in Lyon in his sea encrusted clothes. So he was still soaked in the clothes from that 
that still kind of salty. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, he made his way to Virginia's <clears throat> new place and then begged her to leave the country. She made it clear that she would not leave. However, Calburn had made Baker Street aware of the goings-on. A few weeks later, Lachat and Lucas were picked up and taken to London. Lachat was interrogated, quote, when... When they had, when they no longer had use for her, she was sent to prison for the rest of the war. End quote. Damn. <laughs> While Lucas was quote itching to get back to France, he, Lucas, will now be referred to as Sylvian because he changed his name to go in there. Now at this point in our story, Sylvian should be more careful than he ever has. He's fucked up. Just so much shit right he, now, right? He, he's the one that got kind of cocky and tried to take over the, the the network, right? No, that's Elaine. I was going to say, he's not quite as bad as Elaine. Um, still who, kind of a fuck-up, though. He's still a fuck-up. Well, that's what she's running. Virginia's constantly running in, into these people, like, throughout her experiences. There's so many men fucking up in so many ways. And, like, I don't know if you noticed, but Sylvian was fucking Le Chat. And so it's like, all these people's penises keep running them into fucking tragedy. And it's fucking crazy. <laughs> and it's just one after another that she's having to fucking deal with all this shit while she's like, could we focus? Could we please focus on the topic at hand? They're could like, yeah, but quit boning the people <laughs> that are, you're spying with. Okay. Okay. I'll tell you what. I'm not going to stop boning them, but could we bring this woman into our network? Maybe I'm trying to bring her into my network and you know, she's a really good cook and, <laughs> Dude, it's just, well, and what I said about like this being incompetence or like sloppiness, it's really like or intentional. It's hard to fucking determine, man. Like, cause I don't know. Anyway. Or was he being dumb? Was he being sloppy? Yeah. Or was just horny? What happened? Uh, so again, at this point, Sylvian should be more careful than he ever has been. But he decides to send two couriers to Virginia with instructions to transmit messages via her connections to the diplomatic bag. <laughs> this was a little bit of a surprise, I'm sure, being that Sylvian had just majorly fucked up a secret mission, gotten two radio uh, SOE radio operators probably killed, and a Royal Navy officer captured. One of these messengers had gotten to Virginia with little interruption. The second, however, quote, was stopped on the demarcation line by an enemy, uh, an army control and tortured for three days. The papers he was carrying were sent to Bleicher, who did not recognize the name, but was all too familiar with his handwriting, end quote. Damn. <laughs> so the, the, the guy that Sylvian, Sylvian had been fucking the chat, who had been fucking Bleicher. Sylvian gets back there and immediately gets back into contact with Bleicher accidentally. <laughs> so he saw it. Old boy saw his Eskimo cousin's handwriting. And I was like, I know that. That's my boy. I know that guy. He yeah. had a threesome up in Marseille. Yeah. He was also familiar with Lucas's network and soon Bleicher, quote, a brilliant manhunter, end quote, had rounded up much of, if not all, of Sylvian's network, finally capturing Sylvian himself in, uh, on April 25th, 1942. Sylvian should have just stayed the fuck home. <laughs> Probably. Just went back to get captured. In prison, Sylvian had tried to uh, kill himself with morphine, but su survived. He somehow convinced his captors to send him to a work camp at Kolditz rather than the firing squad. Bleicher, however, was now focused on to whom these messages were to be delivered. Quote, The intelligence pointed towards a, qu a key figure operating out of Lyon. Whoever this resourceful man was, 
he was clearly at the linchpin of Allied intelligence. Certainly, he his, his is F- a master of disguise. <laughs> his F section network was regarded in Britain as the number one enemy to internal security. His elusive, this elusive and dangerous agent must be tracked down and neutralized. End quote. And as we can guess, this man was Virginia. <laughs> yep. <laughs> He's a master of disguise. Master of disguise. He even hit his penis <laughs> <laughs> in his vagina. And it's, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Virginia's heckler network was now so well established, dozens, dozens of recruits had turned into hundreds of capable co-conspirators from a vast background of different professions. Dr. Rousseau and Germain had branched Virginia's network out far across France, reaching from the southern coast to the Swiss border. Quote, from doctors to prison officials to trained engineers, here was the genuine nucleus of a secret army for when the time came. If only they could have a transmitter to talk to London in real time to make plans and take orders. End quote. (laughs) Radios are hard, man. Yeah, and it's just like a... Think of our cell phones. And it's a crazy contrast between the two where, like, I can call anybody at anywhere on the planet right now and coordinate any kind of thing with them. Super easy. And no one can just, like, listen in by being on the right phone channel. Yeah. Well, I mean, other than, like, the NSA and stuff like that. I mean, of course, the NSA, but they keep our secrets, right? They're going to... It's, they're just looking out for us. Oh, yeah. We should definitely trust the American government. Yeah, I, they have nothing but our, our best intentions. Absolutely. Mind. There is nothing at all amiss there. Don't look that way. And, and definitely don't look at me. And really the coolest thing about capitalism is how um, governments like really control corporations and make sure that they're not doing oh yeah it would be terrible if corporate power somehow had the reins and was just driving the bus yeah like if i don't know if ibm had collaborate collaborated with the nazis or like (laughs) or like maybe coco chanel you know it's it'd be weird if these swampy it'd be weird if these corporations had very weird if henry ford met with hitler it'd be really weird collaborated a bit with them well Good thing that didn't happen. happen. (laughs) Um, Don't Google it. Don't go if you want to keep. SOE agent Jerry Morell had been arrested after it was discovered that his ration card, quote, cited a non-existent address. Morell was soon to be moved to a solitary confinement uh, to solitary confinement in a notorious prison in Perigueux. I think I nailed it. Perigueux was a prison. was the prison where the other agents captured at Villa Dubois were being held. The officers who had arrested Morel were actually reporting to a Leon Guth. Guth, the regional chief of the suit, was one of Virginia's devotees. <laughs> nice. Virginia and Guth were good friends, and altogether they hatched a plan to spring Morel from the prison at Perigu. Inside the prison... Morell f- refused to eat and became ill, which may have been helped along by SOE sick pills, which uh, imitated the symptoms of typhoid. Friendly guards moved him to a hospital near Guth's office for a an abdominal procedure. Pills that mocked typhoid. Yeah. I want to know more. We're going to delve into a little bit of some of this, like, I don't know, because I think spy technology is really cool. 
And so there's a couple of sections throughout these these two episodes that you'll be able to, to see really highlighted what's going on here. Just eat this. It's as asbestos. It'll mimic all, <laughs> all the symptoms <laughs> of you dying. Really also, if you eat lead, makes your your prison guards think that you're crazy. So go ahead. <laughs> gobble it up. You eat enough lead and your brain becomes inflamed. And <laughs> <laughs> But don't worry. We're pretty sure it goes down. Goes uh, down sweet and smooth. Friendly guards moved him to uh, a hospital. Uh, they moved Morel next to uh, Mer- Guth's office for an abdominal procedure. The surgeon, friendly to the he- the heckler network, signed that Morel would be unable to walk after his surgery, which is why it made perfect sense to transfer Morel from a heavily patrolled cell with armed guards to a small annex building guarded by a single police officer. Makes sense. Who happened to conveniently doze off on the night that Morel had slipped out of his cell. <laughs> Morel donned uh, a doctor's coat and was aided by a nurse to scale the outside wall where he fell into the hands of more friendly helpers. They gave him a change of shoes, and this must make sense somehow, but I'm really confused by it. Uh, They gave him uh, a a pair of shoes and then sugar and rum. Yeah, when was the last time you went to jail? I mean, I haven't been to jail, but I don't know why sugar and rum is like... Is that a celebratory thing? Am I missing out on like a... I mean, just any kind of hedonism you can afford at that point. That's fair enough. Yeah. And, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe it was just cold and the guy needed blood sugar. So They're like, here's a five pound sack of sugar and a gallon of rum. He's Get also been here. starved for a while, though. That's of course, true. that's probably not the best thing to give a starving person. And that's why I was confused by it. Because I was like, wouldn't you give him like jerky or some shit? I, I mean, that was back in the 19... 19- 1940s yeah, like they was... used to prescribe cigarettes if you're pregnant with thin hips <laughs> Jesus is that real or are you that's that not <laughs> me just jerking your chain here that okay. used to be a thing like my grandmother was told you got really thin hips like you should probably smoke some cigarettes and make the fetus smaller it'll be much better for you oh my god i can't believe that fetal Gee, that... yeah 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 Used to be we're the not, doctor's recommendation. Well, we're not talking about that right now. So <laughs> uh, despite this, uh, oh, sorry, sugar and rum. Through a snowstorm, he traveled. So that makes sense for the rum, actually. Through a snowstorm, he traveled to a safe house uh, to gather his strength. The next day, he made for Virginia's apartment. After a few more days, Virginia began traveling west towards Spain. While, uh, so she took him along with with her and was getting her out of the country. While dodging the Gestapo and traveling with a still unwell man, Virginia eventually got him across the border and safely in the hands of SOE. Quote, back in London, there was stupefaction at Virginia's success. End quote. So, like, this prison was pretty well guarded, and nobody in this network was able to... There's no way this kind of thing should have been able to happen, according to, like, their intelligence. But Virginia was like, I got this. It's because they kept sending a bunch of dipshits in. They're like, no one can possibly <laughs> infiltrate this. Speaking of dipshits, her fellow agent, Elaine, continued to struggle for control of the network. <laughs> Technically in charge, he was uh, desperate to oust Virginia and take control of, of... like. So he's off making his own fucking network, by the way. She's making her own network. And, and his network sucks. His network sucks. And so, um, despite being, as Virginia reported to Baker Street, timid and lazy... Um, Virginia continued her diligent work, knowing one slip-up could get her arrested, tortured, and most likely killed, which is the reason she was so meticulous in her efforts. 
other male agents because it's literally only men weren't so diligent. And one by one, these agents and co-conspirators had slowly been captured, allowing small little bits of information to leak through the cracks. So Vian's connection to Bleicher had shown that a single man had ran the resistance. They knew this agent was in Lyon, and as more and more information leaked, SOE and Baker Street leadership all sought to pull Virginia out before their heckler network linchpin was killed. Alarmed at the enclosing net around her, in mid uh, in the mid nineteen forties, uh, sorry, in mid nineteen forty two, Virginia was told she needed to escape, and she still refused. She had people relying on her. Her network was single handedly run by her. Only she could organize this network to strike with the precision and efficacy needed to keep the underground network on task. Another reason she refused to go back was she was about to set in work one of her most brilliant and well-organized operations. She was going to get the agents captured at Villa Dubois out of the Perigueux Maximum Security Prison. Yeah, it's going to some great escape type stuff. And with that, we're going to take a little bitty break. All right. Come back with the end. I hope she rides a motorcycle through the French countryside. And we're back. Hello. Hello. Swampy, it's good to see you again. (laughs) As well. It's been a long break. Arrested alongside the 12 Villa Dubois agents, Gabby Bloche, wife of the former French deputy Jean-Pierre Bloche, had been released. So, Jean-Pierre, the French deputy... His wife had been arrested, was with the Villa Dubois guys in, in Perigueux prison. She, like, get out for good behavior? Or? I think she just got arrested for, like, really simple shit. So, okay. like, she had to serve a small amount of time. <clears throat> anyway, um, she had frequented the prison to visit her husband after sh- her release uh, while trying dip, uh, bureaucratic routes to get his release. Desperate and frustrated, she, independently of anyone else, sought out and found Virginia Hall. And this... Pr- this impressed Virginia, quote, all the more so because of the incredible dangers Bloch faced as a Jew, end quote. One of the other prisoners, George Beeg, who we've talked about. This guy. This fucking guy. Uh, he had someone smuggle letters out of prison. The letters detailed how well they were being arrested and uh, how well they were being treated and that they all felt good in prison. However, the exact opposite was was true, which was exactly how Virginia and Blosh read the coded wording. For Virginia, it was another opportunity to de- to do the thing that nobody thought could be done. For a mind as brilliant as Virginia, the impossible seems to have just been a, pu- a puzzle yet to be solved. Her first step to breaking these motherfuckers out of this prison was to petition the embassy the American Embassy. Speaking with Admiral Leahy, one of her first contacts early on her arrival, Virginia convinced him to begin a back-channel diplomatic approach with the goal being the prisoners' uh, early release. Um, and they were going to petition them with the argument that the prison was like dirty, dangerous, cold, and like, in summary, unlivable. So they're, they're like, get these guys out. You guys are treating them poorly as you know, prisoners or whatever. Um, and this did not secure the release of the Villa Dubois uh, agents, nicknamed Clan Cameron. So, really, the Nazis didn't really listen to the complaints about it being un- <laughs> not good living conditions? No, no. It turns out the Nazis really didn't care about that kind they, of shit. Oh, man. They had apparently bigger fish, fish to fry. Uh, also, the Villa Dubois uh, agents in this prison are being referred to as Cameron, Clan Cameron right now. So I'm going to use the name Cameron to discuss Clamoran. them. Yeah, <laughs> clamoring. But you can understand my confusion in trying to write this episode too. And like, there's so many fucking names, and they're 
you know, Lucas becomes Sylvian, whose actual name is XYZ, and now we've got Villa Dubois guys who are like a series twelve people, and now they're called Clan Can. All of these guys had to go and go ahead and have names. Yeah, it was just a, it was a wreck. It was hard to study. Anyway, it didn't secure their release. It did, however, secure uh, the Clan Cameron's transfer to Vichy Run internment camp called called Malzac. Um, her original plan had be, been to spring them along the way between the prison and Malzac, um, but the starved prisoners were too weak to run and the route too well guarded to make it a flawless plan. Stop reading my script, Swampy. Yeah, I was actually just looking at the sound things going up and down. <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers. Assessing their new surroundings, the... Uh, the, the prisoners assessing their new surroundings. Uh, Malzak had watchtowers, armed guards, 600 political prisoners, and was wrapped in the warm embrace of two barbed wire fences. Mm. But it's barbed wire, so... Yeah, just like... Just like Mom used to make. <laughs> <laughs> Mom was pretty sweet, hardcore. Sweet two barbed wire fences. <laughs> you can never tell what was in her Christmas pies. Uh, this made their uh, their odds of much their odds much better um, than the pairing guilt prison uh, the, the, their odds of escape quote but at least it was in the open air the men were housed together in large huts and they were permitted to cook for themselves using food brought in by Gabby uh, Gabby Blosh uh, and the Red Cross which was arranged by Virginia and they were even allowed to shower once a week once a week whether they and, need it or not quote yeah well we're gonna move ahead <laughs> uh, Virginia had a two-pronged plan uh, uh, her plan of attack anyway uh, one the men inside would need to prepare and they would need to plan out two once out Virginia's network would escort them from the premises all 12 men had to be in physical shape so they're uh, so they began a workout camp workout routine in the camp rather they would test boundaries and time their escape routes using a ball game a game called Boulet as a cover. They would throw the ball, quote, in pre-selected directions that gave them cover for calculating the time needed to run between the barracks and the fencing, detecting blind spots from the watchtower, uh, finding a hard sun-baked ground where they could leave no tail telltale track, and noting the timing of the patrols. So they're playing this ball game, and they're using it to, like, you know, essentially test the perimeter. Clever girl. <laughs> I was just gonna say they're like velociraptors. <laughs> no, but that that is literally what they're doing, and it's it's pretty amazing. Big, who was a craftsman in civilian life, uh, listed tools that they would need while Virginia coached Gabby Blosh on how to flip some guards who uh, drank at the hotel a few miles away. So, hello, listener. Um, I wanted to interrupt for just a second because after doing editing, um, I realized that I used the word seduce to describe some of the, the things that Gabby was going to do. Um, and since the recording, I've realized that the word seduce is the wrong word and I should have used the word persuade. So sorry for any confusion this may cause. Um, back to the episode. Being's like, hey, this is our list of shit. And Virginia's like, cool, I got that. And then Virginia's like, hey, Gabby. Go seduce some guards at the local hotel bar. She's like, I got that. I can do one that. does, yeah. Yeah. Gabby uh recruited a recruited a guard by plying him with patriotism and inevitable allied victory and money. Is that what she plied him with? I mean, that's what it said in the book. All right. Yeah. 
She enlisted his help, but he was soon caught and fired for smuggling messages. She made inroads with two other guards who ultimately didn't want to be involved. Jose Sevilla, however, a guard, was eventually enlisted on, to the, on the condition that he be taken to London so he could, quote, join the free French gathering in ever greater numbers around General de Gaulle, end quote. Hitting it with that patriotism. Well, and that's, like, kind of the cool thing that, like, maybe it gets lost in this script that I've written, but there's, like, this ever-growing, like, fuming rage that the French have that is, like, steadily building and... And, like, Virginia seems really good at, like, getting under people's skin and, like, being able to get that rage to bubble over, you know? Why? Is the occupation not going well? Are the Germans... Are they being... Well, see, here's the thing. Mean? The Germans have decided that everybody has to eat dessert at noon for lunch. And so most people who want to eat, I don't know, something reasonable like a salad or or maybe you're a burger kind of guy. Like, I don't know. Uh, People are, you know, they just don't really like it. I feel like there are a lot of jokes about the French (laughs) out there, but there's definitely the pervasive French culture of, like, standing the fuck up and doing things. Even today, you know, like, they they try to change the the retirement age, and they're like, no, we're burning some things down. We're going to start burning shit down. And that was only a couple, like, a week ago? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They started burning shit down. Yeah. This is time-honored tradition in france and it honestly feels like maybe it's just a uh, american nationalism like the, the our chauvinism that uh that keeps us thinking that the french are pussies like I, I think americans are like they don't even have guns and ride horses and then one time the nazis invaded them so pussies there there's a lot of jokes there yeah. and i definitely grew up with a lot of them and most of them are not fair. I mean, you, you get surprised by your crazy meth head neighbor doing a B and E, and that's not your fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, and also like people are capable of fighting and being angry. So, I think French people are real people. I I'd have to check the I record, believe that but as yeah, well. yeah I, I think that I they choose are, to so. believe that <laughs> the French people are actual people. I choose to believe that, too. Bold stance, I know. <laughs> but Black Sheep and Bad Apples taking that stance. We're, we're willing, willing to risk ourselves. Go ahead, cancel this for it. Um, Sevilla uh, convinces bosses that Watchtower 5 should be unmanned at night due to the fact that it allegedly, quote, swayed in the, in the wind, making the platform to the ladder unsafe in the dark, end quote. It didn't sway in the wind, man. Yeah, but you got to keep with them OSHA regulations. We have those for a reason. Say that again. You got to keep with OSHA regulations. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, OSHA wasn't formed yet, but yeah, she was on top of it. She was definitely on top of it. Worker safety and all that. That's solidarity. Um, Gabby was tasked with bringing in clothes and large amounts of food to Clan Cameron. It did. It did raise attention from her neighbors who had her house searched by police. They searched her while bringing in food and allowed her to go on her way, despite the fact that a file was hidden in a jar of jam. Inside laundry, there were wire cutters. Hollowed out books held a screwdriver and a hammer. And top quality sardines would be eaten and their cans used as a pliable metal uh, as pliable metal implements. Big used all of these things to craft a key to their door, which, provi- which with cover provided by Clan Cameron singing very loudly in, quote, most obscene songs. <laughs> 
So he's in there like striking at these metal pieces, making them just ching, ching, like anvil noises. And in order to to suppress that sound, Clan Cameron is just singing the most obscene shit that they can. Ball of Carrie Mirror type things, you know. I don't know what that is, but yes. <laughs> yes. Still, messages were hard to get through the uh, the secured internment camp. Virginia organized, or it's not an internment camp. I don't know why I wrote that. It's a prison. Uh, Virginia organized a polite, old-legged, old, one-legged priest to stop by the prison, ostensibly for some sort of churchy thing. Eventually, he had asked the Camerons to bring him, uh, so he had come in and brought them, like, paint supplies, just, like, all sorts of stuff under the guise of, like, yeah, I'm just a priest, just here to, you know, give them their Hail Marys or whatever the fuck they do. Do um, sacraments. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Good words. Way to, way to sound like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, give them a cracker and a glass of wine and send them on their way. Basically. Um, and so eventually he had been asked by the Camerons to bring uh, to bring them some paint to, quote, spruce up their hut. During this, uh, during one of his now regular visits, the priest was asked to, lift, to be lifted into the barracks to see their work. So he's like, hey, Clayton Cameron, lift me in there. Let, let me take a look at what you guys have been doing, painting up the inside. You know, how, how are the dressers looking and stuff? Um, once inside, he had them lift up his Cossack, where they found a piano. Excuse me? It was a radio. Oh. Yeah, because remember earlier when I said that... It's about to say, where do you even strap the piano? (laughs) Under the... Under his Cossack. So he was in a wheelchair, and he he kind of shuffled in there, and under his, his... Cossack, he was like, "Hey guys, take a gander," and I bet they were all freaked out at first. He's like, take "Look a under, gander look under, under my here. <laughs> When I first read that too, he lifted his Cossack. I was like, "Whoa, it's spicy, oh, man!" I didn't know this was going to be one of those kind of romance novels. That was a bad joke. Anyway, I can cut that later. <laughs> Get in post. So Virginia had successfully given the men inside the the, the prison a radio with which to communicate. The Camerons were soon transmitting uh, information to and fro, even able to run espionage from the camp. They had gleaned the location of, quote, German, uh, German shells and the explosive factory, end quote, and had been sent the informa- they had sent the information along. A few days later, the fucking factory had been bombed by RAF fighters, destroying it. So while these guys are in prison, they're, like, still contributing to the war effort. <laughs> it's fucking crazy. And then... Yeah, great. <laughs> Keep them. And again, it's just an amazing like. This would be an impossible thing without Virginia to have done. And I don't know. She organized the entire thing and got people that are already in jail contributing the war effort. Yeah, and pointing out targets and whatnot. It's fucking wild. It's it's pretty ingenious. Also, you don't look for the spy in the jail. That's it's true. It's just not where the spy is well, supposed to be. And how are they going to get information out? You know, they're in jail. <laughs> anyway, they already tried. <laughs> so one of the men inside who like was in their in their like tent or hut or whatever, um, and he wasn't affl- officially with with them. Uh, his name was Florette, and he was a an early kind of recruit of Beegs, but he had threatened to tell the guards if the men escaped out of fear of reprisals against his family. So Florette's scared for his family. Uh, George Langlin, one of the Camerons, uh, was one day called to the doctor, who, most likely a co-conspirator, gave him a vial. The doctor said uh, it was, quote, it, it was a, quote, harmless sleeping draft 
that he suggested might come in useful. That's how it was written. But what did he give him that thing that uh, Juliet got, or what? I don't know. It's some sleeping draft is how it was described. Anyway. Their preparations ran into time constraints when they discovered their handmade key hadn't been able to open the lock, so another round of interminable sing-songs sp- sing would emanate from their hut. Another sl- snag of the plan happened when a guard passed along a message. Uh, well, when he was passing along a message, he slipped it into the into the jacket pocket of like a, a certain jacket that was hanging up, but it was the wrong jacket, and uh, and it was picked up by. Uh, anyway, the message was to Gabby, who was quickly brought in and grilled by the mess sergeant, who then suddenly changed his tone altogether, offering to help free some of 50,000 francs, which was easily provided. There were several several precise steps that be, would be required for Clan Cameron to be successful and for all of them to... They would all have to have it timed to the second. Quote, Thanks to the food parcels and their exercise routines, the men were feeling physically stronger, which was which was just as well. For their escape to work, uh, they would need to be in almost peak condition. First, they would have to sprint from the hut to a dark dark spot shielded by another building from the bright uh, arc lights on the towers. From there, they would need to run to an exact predetermined point in the barbed wire fencing located uh, during the countless sessions of Boulay, anyway, out of sight of the manned watchtowers and relatively dimly lit. Here the wire would be held tightly apart by trussel tables built by Big. And we're just going to stop the quote for a second because as a part of their, like, I tried to figure out what trussel tables were. And I think they're just tables. I couldn't figure it out. They're tables that, that have a truffle type tru- feel to tru- them. Trestle. Vibe, as it were. T-R-E-S-T-L-E. Trestel tables. Trestle? Yeah. Anyway, uh, returning to the quote. Uh, the trestle tables built by Big as part of their supposed redecoration of their hut from old planks of wood, end quote. And again, like, I don't know what a trestle table is. I think it's just a, a table that they use to hold the barbed wire up, maybe? Makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, because a piece of old carpet would be thrown down to stop their stomachs from being torn to shreds as they crawled uh, in the near-flat style taught to them by Trotobus. Keep that in mind, kids. It's always a good thing to remember. Yeah, Trotobus was also one of the Camerons, so just... Oh, I meant the carpet on the barbed wire. Oh, yeah. Useful yeah. trick. Definitely protect your tum-tum. Uh, quote, But it would still be a huge challenge to run the fence in two stages, then to work their way through several yards of barbed wire fencing, all in the dark, all in no more than a minute. The entire process had been timed out to the split second to avoid the regular rounds of the guards. A single delay could wreck the whole operation and the patrols might at any time spot the open door of the barracks, so the more artistic among them painted a false door on a sackcloth, which could be pinned up in seconds once the real door had been unlocked. End quote. So it's getting pretty elaborate. They're going to put up a sackcloth and then just sprint as fast as they can. And on the afternoon of 15th of July, they had seen an old lady pass the camp with three children in tow. Now, Normally, this would not be an indication of anything, but to Clan Cameron, the old lady and children passing at that exact time were the signal from Virginia that everything was in place to make their attempt, which was made all the more dire as it was to be the last moonless night for their oper- like during their operational window. It was the new moon. No chance for another month. 28 exactly. days or so. Exactly. However, had they seen an old man, 
the operation would have been aborted. <laughs> but that sounds like there's so many variables. Uh, I guess so. Like, how many old guys and women with triplets are, are there in this little town? I don't know. I don't rightly know. So, did it work? I'm glad you asked. So that night, they slipped the sleeping potion into Florette's drink. Usually, he went down early anyway, so the fact that he was awake for a little while until the potion took effect left the men on edge. I love how he just leaned into the drought thing and started calling it a potion. Well, the sleeping potion was, was their words in the book. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's a... Yeah. Sleeping draft, but in the book it's sleeping po they, they describe it as a couple of different things. Don't get so pedantic, Swamp. I mean, you gotta me. use multiple words. You can't <laughs> just keep using Yeah, exactly. You don't want to be redundant. It's stylish to to pull out the thesaurus for these type of things. Oh yeah. Um so Florette usually went down early anyway, but the fact that he was awake for his sleep for the fact that he was awake for a while until the potion took effect left the men on edge. Eventually, though, Florette stopped whistling, began to undress, and was soon snoring. During this time, Sevilla had had a friend bring in, quote, two liters of white wine, end quote, into the guardroom and began drinking with his boss. Once the men were drunk, they would sing loudly, which was another guard signal to head to Watchtower 7, where he would flick the all-clear on his lighter to Clan Cameron with his cigarette lighter. The men hurriedly stuffed their dummy people into their beds and waited for the signal, and they waited. They gave them lighters? And then they waited. The guards have lighters. Oh, the guard was one of the ones. Yeah, the guards. Signaling. The guard is going to the watchtower. So, so after. Go ahead. So one of the. Or at least a few of the guards were, were with the, the prisoners. Yeah, it seems at least three, four of them were. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. Well, and, and I just think it's very funny that Sophie is like getting drunk with his boss and he's like, all right, when we start singing the. When we start singing the national anthem or whatever, like that's your signal to go up to the watchtower and flick the lighter, and that lighter will let them know down there to start their escape. It's a lot of steps. Yeah. And so again, they waited, and they waited, and they waited. The guard had gotten cold feet. Noticing the flaw in the plan, and with his own freedom on the line, Sevilla stepped away from his drunken boss and made his ape up his way up to Watchtower 7, where he lit his pipe. Clan Cameron was extremely relieved and locked their door, which, quote, creaked painfully despite having been oiled the previous day, end quote. Oof, every time when you're trying to be sneaky, it's always that creaky door hinge yeah, yeah. for some reason. Or, or, or you, you step on Legos in the living room or a yeah, squeaky toy from your dog. Yeah, and yeah. the floor just... <laughs> Every um, time you try to be quiet, it's, you can't sneak in, you can't sneak out. Yeah. <laughs> so having drawn lots on who would go first, Trotobas, uh, rushed, he was the first person, and he rushed out to the barbed wire with the carpet while simultaneously unwinding a spool of string. Three tugs would mean danger, one meant all clear. And he gave the all clear. And within seconds, most of the men had crossed the yard to the barbed wire and had climbed under it. The last of them, Langolin, was crossing the carpet when a guard stood over him. From behind, Trotobos was, because he's holding the wire up, I think, Trotobos was about to use his SOE ninja skills to kill the guard silently, quote, when the guard whispered, Is it the English? And Trotobos whispered, Yes. Well, don't make so much noise, the guard responded before walking away. 
end quote. <laughs> Yo, shut the fuck up. <laughs> it's so fucking awesome. And just, again, just so precise, too. Like, that's the thing that really gets me is that oh, it's so good. I like the scene you played out there, too. The voices were good. Yeah, thank is you. Is it the English? Is it the English? Make a little nice noise. Then shut the fuck up. <laughs> and then he just walks away. So Sevilla, the, the, so the guard Sevilla, by the way, he's the last one through. And when it's all said and done, the title of this chapter in A Woman of No Importance explains the incredible feat. The chapter's title is 12 Men, 12 Minutes. It took them less than a minute each. Hot. Quote, the whole exquisite exercise had taken 12 minutes, a minute a man, end quote. Once outside, the men ran several miles to an awaiting truck. It took them until the next morning to realize that they were gone. That's fucking pimp, dude. Virginia. Planning all of this. Starting that, with nothing. That was a pretty great escape. Everybody. We didn't need Lee Marvin. We didn't need the motorcycle scene. No, dude. It, that was pretty great. It's fucking slick as shit, and it's all the more impressive that like she's constantly being like pushed back upon by all of her like fellow agents, and when she's working within her own network and she has people that listen to her, things go fucking smoothly every fucking time. But there's still always at least one cunt being like, "Why, lady, in charge?" Exactly. Um. <sighs> so after their escape, Gabby Blosh was arrested, and quote with an ironclad alibi, end quote, as suggested by Virginia, subsequently released, despite the fact that Vichy France and the Nazis knew this was a slick-as-fuck prison break. <laughs> She's like, what? I did nothing. I, I was banging the Nazis yeah. at the time. Like, yeah, I was here? <laughs> um, rumors were that the Camerons were picked up via an English uh, bomber plane. However, Virginia was just slick enough to have created that rumor and spread it throughout her, quote, Local prostitutes, doctors, and hairdressers, end quote. <laughs> Wait, one more time? So, I'll read it. Um, rumors were that the Cameron, clan camera, the, the escapees... Yeah, they got on a plane. Yeah, they got on a plane. However, Virginia was just slick enough to have created that rumor and spread it throughout her, quote, local prostitutes, doctors, and hairdressers. Okay, <laughs> end so, quote. So, so she used kind of her network of uh, uh, propaganda people to, like, very <laughs> subtly, like, hey, if anybody asks, you tell them they got off on a bomber, okay? It's going to freak them it's, out. <laughs> it's so Like, how did an English bomber get here? Well, they did. And it has to take weeks to plan that kind of a, Like, you, you can't tell somebody that day, be like, oh, yeah, they, I heard that they, like, you have to have made that, Rumors start, like, weeks before, I feel like. I don't know. Uh, uh, her idea was that if the Nazis already thought the prisoners were back in England, they wouldn't look for them. When in reality, they had been driven 20 miles, hidden... That they had driven 20 miles, they hid the truck, and walked through the dense forest past the point of where vehicles could follow to an old abandoned barn, which had been prepared for their arrival. After a few weeks, they made their way in small groups to Virginia and Lyon, who successfully dispatched them back to London. <laughs> you just stuck them a few miles away to get the, the logistics in order. Well, and it's one of those things where um, cops, like, when you run from the cops, they're trained to, like, okay, they only ran so far, and then they're going to hide within this certain area beyond it, you know. But if you keep running, chances are they're going to stop in that area and look for you within that region you know and so it is one of those interesting cases of like doing that exactly but getting away with it 
where they're like, well, the rumors helped, you know? And I, I feel like in a war type scenario, that's a little bit different. And the the modern sure. way way a policeman would be like he hasn't gone far and just look from around here yeah is you don't think of that when you're you're like oh they did a prison escape yeah exactly like, they it, went farther than twenty miles down yeah. to the next town well and also like if they've broken out they're trying to get as far like they're trying to blitzkrieg their way out you know what I mean right they're running <laughs> yeah uh, also. That's also funny, too, because that's just... That might be the Germans playing into their own head, where they're like, well, obviously he would blitzkrieg his way out of the he country. He wouldn't stay here. He if I was here, no, I would be all the way back in Berlin. I would have left, like, immediately. Already. Like, as soon as possible, you know. I yeah. wouldn't stay around here. It's bad around here. Have you seen us? We're terrible. <laughs> We're terrible people. We have a terrible time, and it's so much fun for, like, us. But, like, yeah, I understand why they would leave, because that... We, we sucked them very hard. Is that the word for it? We sucked them? Y yeah. Okay, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Virginia Hall, after using her ex uh, extremely extensive heckler network to break out 12 SOE agents from Mazak internment camp, was now the most wanted yeah. person in Nazi-occupied France. And the Nazis had tracked her network back to Lyon, where she, had been where, where she was currently staying. The Nazis were also suspicious of the American consulate in Lyon, which Virginia still frequented because of the diplomatic pouch. Um, however, the Nazi intelligence arms, the Abwehr and the Gestapo, were bitter rivals who were always looking to outdo the other. The Abwehr had the benefit of learning codes, uh, of learning codes and locations from Bleicher, but like the Gestapo had no such, no such luck. So the Gestapo were kind of running blind, whereas like Bleicher with the Abwehr, he he kind of. He's got enough intelligence to be like, we fucking got her. He's we, we figured got him. out enough. Yeah, we got him. Um, as such, the Abwehr was in a better position to look for Virginia and used more finesse than their counterparts at the Gestapo. So they're they're trying to be more... They're trying to smooth their way into it, the Abwehr, rather than get the Gestapo, which is like, let's kick in the door and get him. Kind of heavy-handed. Yeah. Historically known. The, the <laughs> yeah, Gestapo. the Gestapo. Yeah. <laughs> Not known for their light touch. <laughs> <laughs> Due to Sylvian's fuck-ups, you know, Lucas's fuck-ups, the Abwehr knew that they were looking for a man from England or Canada. And that man, they thought, well, who they thought was an English or Canadian or something, was actually a woman. I really love that he got captured and interrogated, and he's like, yeah, he's a Canadian guy! <laughs> well, <laughs> and... They were just like, yeah, that that stands to reason. And he's like, yeah, I managed to like, no, I'm lying, to you motherfucker. You yeah, know, I'm find out. <laughs> like he at least had that much presence of mind to fuck up and get captured. And, you know, it's really hard to be like, oh, it was just kind of a dipshit that got captured. He was a spy in war to France. Yeah, you know, you probably if he's not shot in the face by now, he's doing pretty good for the course well and it might be one of those things where Sylvian is like getting his ass beat so they're like tell us the answer to our questions tell you anything and rather than telling you yeah rather than telling you that two plus two equals four he's like it's like above three there are five lights i'm sorry sorry that was a star trek reference oh okay <laughs> anyway but yeah it might just be one of those things where he's like giving them anything that will appease them and he's like she's canadian and they're like that makes a lot of sense, yeah. He's Canadian. Yeah, okay. Let you me, mean let, he's, or, da? Yeah. 
<laughs> He's da. There's no way it could be a woman. Woman can't spy and God. organize. It's so fucking good. Nine. Nine. Uh, so that you know, they they thought they had a, a an English or Canadian man or something, and that man was actually a woman, and that woman had a limp, and they knew that her name was Marie Monin. Which Wait, was, they knew she was a woman. Marie Monin. Marie Monin. Yeah, that was her code name. So they know who Virginia is. Okay, so they figured out that it wasn't a guy guy from Canada. Yeah, at this point they're 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 onto her. They're like, it's probably Canadian or English, but I it's don't definitely think this man has a penis at all. <laughs> Where's his penis? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and like. That's kind of all they had on Virginia, which is like, it may seem like they have a lot on her. They've got sort of a description, uh, but she's also like more or less in hiding in a gigantic city. And yeah, the, it's 1930s type of stuff. There's no facial recognition. There's no like, oh, go look at her Facebook. That's think... picture. It's like, oh, she's this, this. Yeah. This. I don't even think they had fingerprints at the time. I, I don't know her exact description, but some white lady and they all look alike. It's really hard to tell them apart. Yeah, and actually, I think they did have a description, uh, rather fingerprint, a fingerprint. Well, yeah, yeah but it's nineteen forties. What are you going to do with that? That's true. <laughs> I mean, they did have the technology, I think, back then, but it was yeah. still just kind of looking at it and being. Well, like, she's never that been looks a, similar. She's never been arrested. So, like, what? A, anyway, we're getting down a rabbit hole. Um, so the Abwehr, they're looking for, they're trying to finesse their way into it. On the other hand, the Gestapo, you know, they were brute force and uh they had the brute force and the most brutal nazi investigator they could get quote and i'm gonna fuck this word up heinstrom Führer, klaus barbie reared as a reared by his abusive father who had been severely mentally and physically damaging fighting in the french at verdun in 1916 end quote was assigned to find the limping lady who at this time was being asked to leave from her post you know anything about klaus barbie I the name rings a funny little bell, but I feel like it might get a little. We're gonna learn more about him. Not at this moment. Okay. Later in the episode. I like learning. So Nicholas Boddington, kind of like essentially her boss at SOE. Uh, okay. So he's in England. This Nicholas Boddington fellow. Yeah, he's in England, and he's he's. At this point, I think that he's actually been parachuted into France. Okay, France. hopefully yeah. he's not going by Nicholas v Boddington, because that is the most violently English name ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, would you like a cup of tea, Mr. Boddington? Fucking get out of here. Yeah, that vibe. It, it's yeah, yeah it, violently English. It's violently English. It sounds like he wants to take over an, an island somewhere. Like most things. English. Yeah. Um, but essentially, her boss at uh, SOE, he... Came into he came to Leon to discuss Virginia leaving. However, uh, Virginia replied that she had she still had work to do. And after some conversation, Boddington reported back to London that Virginia could should continue to do the work that she was so good at. However, perhaps trying to establish himself politically, Boddington wanted to quash the issue of who was the leader for good. Of course, he did. Elaine, he Virginia's fellow agent, who was again technically in charge, was terrible at his job having recruited very few devotees to the cause and spending a lot of his time fecklessly, 
Elaine lacked the proper credentials and experience to take leadership of the Heckler Network. On the other hand, in stark contrast to Elaine, Virginia had built up a robust network of friendly professionals and demonstrated by the Malzac breakout that they were capable of delivering devastating blows to the Nazis in Vichy, France. So the choice for Boddington was clear. Elaine had a penis, so he would get the job. Oof. Which was the exact opposite of idea that the Gestapo had been toying with. Initially, ungentlemanly, ungentlemanly warfare was conducted by gentlemen. However, with the rough sketch of the limping lady in their heads, the Gestapo ramped up their suspicion of women. You got any thoughts so far? It's, uh... Don't read. I'm not... <laughs> I swear, I'm still just looking at the sounds going up and down. It's, you guys at home can't see this, but it's Swampy... pattern. Looks like he's trying to spoil the story by looking at the script. <laughs> anyway, do you have any thoughts so, so far? So, they've figured out that it's a woman doing all these things. Yeah. yeah. And so, the, the general back home has decided that the, this Elaine fellow is the guy who's in charge because a woman in charge. the <laughs> rest. Well, and also I think I think he's just kind of the most vocal person where he's just bitching about it constantly. But yeah, Oh, yeah, that, one of those people on the team, yeah. you know, talks a lot about the bullshit. But and... I've tried really hard, and it's just not working for me. But I've got the skills, so if I, just let, give me... I don't know, it's like somebody uh, wanting to be crew leader of, like, a, a military and not having any experience like a grunt in the military a new person in the military being like i should be captain that's kind of the vibe that i'm getting it it, uh, it almost has the vibe to me of just countless times women have done amazing and great things through history discovered yep. things yep. fucking made huge efforts where some guys just like no i'm taking charge of that like that that was my thing yeah i and did that it's like, honestly like, I don't know, I'm going to get down a rabbit hole, but it's like how, you know, medieval kings were like, look at my son, he will be the heir to the throne. Meanwhile, the wife is like, hey, I I did that. I pooped that kid out. <laughs> I did. I made yeah. that. What, what was my cr- I don't know. Man. I mean, an example I, I like to think of is like Mary Anning. She she spent a bunch of uh time down on the beaches of england like digging up dinosaur bones and fossils and shit like that and she had to sell them to make you know food happen on the table and like one of the okay most amazing earliest paleontologists we have pulling up full fossils uh i think she she might have pulled like one of the first leoplerodine don complete fossils. i'm not sure about that so don't quote me Uh, but look up mary annie she's very fascinating but Male scientists stole all her work, and it, it's just frustrating. What a cool thing! <laughs> it's so frustrating. It, there, there's a lot of examples of that through history. Some douchebag guy just being like, "No, that's my work." Well, I, it, a woman couldn't do that. That's obviously my discovery. Well, and it's insane because we're. Like they, the, there's this idea of relegating women to the to the to the house, and like especially in like the olden times, it was like, yeah, women love to bear children and to clean dirty asses and breastfeed, you know. And it's like some women have passions and shit like that, and it's just such a like a, 
it's it was just another way of like containing and controlling women you know what what happened to what was her name the paleontologist Mariani. yeah that was another way of like doing that where it's like she ex- it seems like she excelled at her work and people were like well we've got a container so as not to make us look bad and that's kind of the same thing going on here. You it know? was just kind of the mode. If at you that can't point imprison in them society. with a wedding ring and impregnate them and keep them at home, then we've got to take credit for their shit. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> has to get fabulously rich and famous over this, and it's not going to be her. She has to take care of children. All right, and so. Uh, you know, they have the rough sketch of the limping lady in their heads. Uh, the Gestapo rep- ramped up their, you know, suspicion of women. And in this next paragraph, I'm going, listeners, I want to, I'm talking to you specifically. In this next paragraph, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to read a, a quote that discusses graphic torture conducted by the Gestapo and Klaus Barbie. Um, it's particularly towards women. Uh, so skip ahead if that isn't something that you don't want to listen to. The gist of it all is that Nazis did heinous shit. So I'm going to give you like three seconds to start before I start the quote. So go ahead and skip now if you don't want to hear it. One, two, three. Quote, rumors had no doubt reached Virginia of the sort of treatment that she could expect if she were uh, if she were finally found out. A favorite technique was wrenching off women's nipples with pliers or pressing down on the raw nerve of a smashed tooth, pulling out fingernails or burning skin with cigarettes or soldering irons or acid. Others were sexually assaulted and raped. One of Barbie's favorite techniques would reputedly involve the use of a dog. Later on, the bathtub method of torture, a forerunner of waterboarding, came into favor. The prisoner was immersed naked in in icy water, with her hands manacled behind her back and her head held under until she was on the point of drowning. If she fainted, she was dragged out of the water by her hair. If she still refused to talk, she would be pushed under again. Sometimes, when they were near death, a woman would be offered a coffee or tea, but if she still did not cooperate, the process would start all over again. Occasionally, the women of uh, were Jewish. Bar- uh, occasionally, if the women were Jewish, Barbie would simply crush their faces with his jackboot jack boot heel. End quote. And we're gonna skip some some of the violence that maybe. Uh, I, uh, Jesus fucking Christ! Yeah, it's really heavy, and it's. I wanted to put that in because I don't. Virginia's awesome, but the gravity I think still needs to be understood here. And like how fucking yeah. heinous it would be to get caught, and what standing up and staying there and being in defiance of that shit. Yeah, because Virginia, for for her part, she's having the fucking time of her life. Like she she's having so much fun doing all this stuff. But there's do is that what the kids call sarcasm? No, I'm saying like she loves adventure. She loves like new languages she loves france like and and like sure she's really worried sure she's like hopped up on benzedrine and stuff like that she's also like oh she also doing the meth but yeah she's also uh, i i don't know how i left it out but there was a a list of things that they were kind of given i think we're gonna get to it later actually anyway so virginia she loves adventure she loves traveling she loves doing all the shit she loves meeting new people like her basically her entire early life up to like 25 has been training her to do this stuff and so i think she feels a bunch of responsibility to like help reform france but also like she, she doesn't mind the adventure you know what i mean her element yeah <laughs> and kind of thriving i don't know if i would consider 1940s france the time of anyone's life no and and maybe i i 
misspoke with like maybe I used the wrong words to maybe describe it precisely. Maybe there in like June 6, 1945 or But 40. what I'm saying is Virginia's also enjoying this. 40. 44. 44. Yeah. Uh, um so go Yeah. I'm going to skip some of the violence in the quote because I don't want any of it to be gratuitous. Um, but the next paragraph ends with, quote, the aim of all of this violence was to cleanse the country of dissidents for good, end quote. Because, you know, punitive measures definitely make sure that nobody wants to <laughs> do anything ever again. Yep, yep. So, despite the immense danger now stalking her every move, Virginia's success had opened doors to other Foreign Service agents. By August of 1942, SOE's F section was about ready to, quote, dispatch the first of 38 more female officers, end quote. Progress, it seemed, is always small and incremental. So, wait, they were trying to, this is... They're trying a new batch. Of female espionage officers yeah. in, in France. They were like, Virginia is such a success, we have to put more women out there. Exactly. Well, okay. and, and I'm sure a part of their mentality, which isn't explicitly written in, in A Woman of No Importance, but I think their mentality is like, wow, women are doing so well. I wonder if women just have like a gene in them that makes them better at espionage than us. You know, a part of this is like, I'm sure it's got like a, a misogynistic component where it's, it's like, well, if she did so well, maybe we should try more out. And we're going to get to how those people did here in a second. But do you have any thoughts before we continue? I I kind of see that as almost like, hey, they, they at least saw that, like, acknowledged that Virginia was doing so well that we're, yeah. they were like, hey, maybe this is a good espionage option. Yeah. Which you were saying there was like six women in that entire institution. There was six out of 1,500, I believe it was, State Department people. Like people who worked in the State Department. Okay, so this was in the SOE. No, and, and the State Department is like, it It also like, it's also about like ambassadors and like vice consuls and stuff like that. Okay, so that was a different thing than this espionage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who but, knows but how the, many the, women were but, in that espionage? Well, probably none. Virginia was probably, probably just Virginia. Yeah. And then they're like, we need, we need 28. They're more. really good at this. It turns out. And we're, we're going to get into it. Cause it turns out Virginia is just a very unique person. She's just the right lady for the job. That she, guy who met her on the boat up to Spain. Yeah. Had, had, he picked him good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Knows how to pick. Him. Yeah. Um, and again, progress, it seems is incremental. Um, Many of the women who would later work uh, for SOE would do so as couriers, which subjected them to the most public form of scrutiny, especially since they would have to pass through roadblocks, checkpoints, and roving patrols. They were also de uh, designated as radio officers, officers. Both of these had high attrition rates, and many women were killed for their involvement with the French resistance. And other women were just as bad at the job as the men. One woman, Virginia, sent back uh, sent immediately back to her boat because she had gotten a perm right before heading into Nazi-occupied France, a place that such commodities and luxuries were extremely rare. <laughs> so the secret agent shows up trying to trying to like look all fly and fancy, and Virginia's like, "Fuck no, get go back to your fucking boat. You need to get home. <laughs> You're gonna die out here. You already fucked up. You fucked up so hard. You didn't even step foot on here yet." Um. Uh, others like Yvonne Rudolet, I might be pronouncing that wrong. Yvonne Rudolet, 
Lacht, maybe. Um, others, like Yvonne Rudlat, they were so good at their job that they were recommended to receive the Military Cross Award. Except women weren't eligible to be awarded that medal. <laughs> Damn. Rudolat would eventually die, quote, from typhus just after, after the liberation of Belsen, which was a concentration camp, in 1945. So, we've talked about it a little bit, but at this point I do want to just highlight, like, there's a bunch of people that don't really think that, like, racism exists in this country. They don't think that, like, sexism exists or ableism exists. And it's like, this is... They, those people think that this is shit that happened in the past and we don't have to deal with this shit anymore and it's like it's history times but this shit still exists and like to the people of like Virginia's area era this was the backdrop of their lives this wasn't something that was obvious that was like something that you even talked about nobody understood it and like it was the predominant culture yeah and like type of thing going on yeah like I don't know people think that we don't have that same kind of predominant culture nowadays. And it it's bullshit because some of the systemic stuff still exists, especially like sexism and racism. We're going to talk about a little bit more about sexism here, but like it, like that there are people who think that this shit doesn't exist and it's fucking obvious that it does. It's kind of everywhere. It's kind of real, everywhere. Real antiquated ideals. It, I think the, the, Never mind. Let, let, let's move let's, on. Let's go back to Virginia. This is a segue we don't need to <laughs> yeah. go down. I just really, I, yeah, when I was reading this and writing this, I was like, I want to make a shout out. <laughs> I want to shout out these fucking idiots that don't understand that this shit is, it's everywhere and obvious. And like, even Virginia to a certain degree is, it you know, is susceptible to this. You know, she, she the, there was no talk of racism, for instance, in this book, which 19... 40 I don't I don't know not to say that she was racist or not but there's like there's always this prevailing background of this kind of stuff that exists where we're talking about Virginia who's this wonderful person going to Nazi Germany and kill the Nazis but like we still don't know what her opinions were about black people drinking from the same water fountain as white people so it's it's just I guess listener just stuff for you to think about and think about the the this is water of the world things to consider yeah um, anyway, back to Virginia. She'd been working tirelessly to expand her operations just before the internment camp escape. The, the, not the internment camp, the Mauzak escape. Um, while no longer officially the leader of her heckler network, she worked independently to continue establishing inroads to various resources and resourceful people. The air quotes legends of the SOE and F section, like codename Gauthier, were as helpful as Elaine. So we're introducing another dickhead, Gauthier. This is one of the people who got a great reputation for the thing. Yeah. Well, maybe not. Because they talked to bringing big dick ener energy through texts, but dropped junk drunken rope dick to the date. Or, as Virginia phrased it, quote, There's too much stress on uh, grandiloquent plans, too many words, and far too little grubbing. Super familiar with that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also like... Just keep Virginia in charge. She knows what she's doing. She's working hard, obviously, to get Let all this. The lady, dude. What the, the fuck? God damn it! It's so frustrating. Uh, 
Anyway, Virginia was working her ass off while having to deal with total uh, with agents like obstacles. Quote, after bailing out one agent who nearly who lost nearly 30,000 francs and his papers on a train and another whose checks for nearly 40,000 francs bounced in a casino, she was tired of playing mother to men behaving like unruly children. End quote. All this was especially frustrating due to the precarious nature of her, nature of her position. Available 24-7, co-working with other spy agencies, including foreign ones like the Poles and Belgian intelligence, despite SOE suggesting that she not. So she's, like, even when she's not in charge, she's still doing boss-level shit, you know. August 14th, 1942. Dennis Rake, who is a, a SOE agent and a pianist, um... He was instructed by Virginia to meet up with two other agents and head to the region of Angers, France. To be his... clear, that's a radio oper a operator by yeah, pianist. Yeah, the pianist, radio okay. radio pianist operator. Yeah. Um, so he was headed, assigned... He and Virginia were, were kind of assigned to go to this place, Angers, France. And they were there to set up a new network there. They'd been given a modernized and thus lighter radio with which to travel. Listeners waited for the for days to hear their hear the radio broadcasts but they never came through her remarkable grapevine so actually i think virginia had instructed rake to go here so i, I was mistaken through her quote remarkable rake grapevine she learned that rake and two others had been stopped by quote an inspector moral of the suit end quote do you remember inspector moral i don't believe i do mr moral okay he had, uh, he had seen the suspicious and nervous rake and had taken him in. Finding upon his person a large amount of money, he had taken him and the other two arrest. Uh, he had taken both him and the other two people uh, and arrested them. Now, if you remember, he was the first person to be ext extricated from the prison at the command of Virginia. So, okay, he was the f like before she even broke those people out of Malzac. The um, I forget the name of it now, but Perigue that she had broken him out of Perigue first. And then that was kind of her test run. That was the one she snuck out with the... The, the sick pills. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so... Yeah. His name was Garrett, Jerry Morell. Inspector Morell took the three to the police station on the suspicion of spying. However, Leon Guth, another one of our, our returning characters, the regional chief of the Sutre, who was Inspector Morell's boss... Uh, was also devoted a, a devoted heckler. So they were just stacking the French police with, with resistance <laughs> yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. I like it. It's crazy. But it's also weird that Detective Morella has taken in Rake and a couple of his friends because he's like, hey, we're the boys, you know. And he's like, all right, downtown. So there's some interesting things developing. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, dun, dun, dun. After... Uh, so yeah, he had taken the the three of them down to the police station for for you know on the suspicion of spying. Um, Leon Guth, who is uh, Gabby Guth, his his husband, her husband, um, was also devoted heckler. And after Morell left, the police, working along with Guth and Virginia, destroyed enough evidence that any charges were were that were filed would be minor at best. Wasn't Gabby running around seducing guards and whatnot? She was. She was. All right. Yeah. So. Well, now we're seeing like the network develop too. Okay, yeah, it's pretty interesting. It was 
did she have a husband while that was going on? Yeah, her her husband was the uh, shoot. I want to say regional director of the region of France, but I don't remember the title for it. French are so progressive. It's... I love it. <laughs> um. So yeah, a bunch of them had destroyed a bunch of um, uh, a bunch of evidence, so their charges would be minor. Um, but the three of them were still in prison. Uh, Rake attempted to break out of prison, but was soon dis- but was discovered when one of the few nurses not involved in the plot saw him coming down the stairway as she was coming up, and she raised an alarm. <laughs> so, like, nurses gave him, like, a jacket and, like, a doctor's thing with the, the pizza cutter on, on the hat thing kind of a thing. They gave him all that kind of stuff, and he was still caught by the only woman that was... the only nurse that was not involved in it. It's pretty wild. Rough. Uh, after this incident... Guth kind of became detached from the he- the heckler network. Quote, the, just, the Gestapo had threatened reprisals against his family if he, quote, lost any more prisoners, let alone appeared to help them, end quote. It seemed her friends in high places might be falling apart to the Nazi war machine. It was during the summer of 1942 the precursor to the CIA was created, the Office of Strategic Services. It was now working in conjunction with SO- SOE to create plans for a counteroffensive to the Nazis. Their offensive was to head off Hitler's reach of Africa, and they knew by heading off heading off and destroying his attempt at Nazi-controlled Africa, Hitler would have to shore up his southern defenses by absorbing France officially into the Nazi war machine. This wasn't more than a formality at this point, but reinforcing the southern border of Nazi France would be a priority if they couldn't hold parts of Africa. As a counteroffensive was launched against the Germans and Italians uh, in Africa, disruptions were needed to hinder their supplies. Virginia... Early in Virginia's mission, her orders were simple, quote, Their job was to merely exist. All assassinations were spectacular acts of sabotage that could be attributed to deliberate interference were to be strictly were strictly forbidden by Baker Street. Fires might mysteriously light themselves, engine bearings might run hot, or perhaps a German car seize up from the sugar in the tank. But things must not go bang in the night, end quote. Cause a ruckus, but keep it low-key yeah her broad orders stayed the same existed exist in the background but the tactics were ordered to change now that things were kind of advancing in the nazi war quote soe had decided it was time to hit the free zone france while it still existed to move on from the niggling small scale i didn't like that word niggling either to move on from the niggling small scale attacks that they had so far organized to to detonate carefully selected big bangs in fact London was bringing in new toys for the Heckler network to play around with. Their baby step objective was to explosively disrupt, disrupt quote, the entire railway network around Lothiers in central France. Pretty good plan. Yeah. Quote again, parachute drops of arms and explosive were generally being stepped up when clear skies and light winds permitted. New agents came in with dozens of false bottom suitcases with warm clothes for the forthcoming winter on top, hiding explosive below. SOE boffins, or scientific blue sky inventors, which was just a type of inventor, uh, had secretly designed a range, of, a range of ingenious explosive devices to cause maximum impact in the most challenging situations. These real-life forerunners of James Bond's Q had come up with milk bottles that exploded if the cap was permoved, uh, removed, loaves of bread that would cause devastation when cut in half, and fountain pens that squirted poison. Perhaps the most popular was face ho- fake horse dung that had exploded if driven over. But there were also tiny but lethal charges that could be inserted into cigarettes, matchboxes, bicycle pumps, 
fountain pens, or hairbrushes, and perhaps most usefully uh, railway engines or fuel tanks. On a larger scale, for the first time, there was even talk of moving on from sabotaging industrial sites to identifying A-class or military targets to hinder the German counterattack in a future Allied invasion, end quote. Going for, like, tanks or barracks or soldiers or taking out, like, officers? They're moving from little, little pestering attacks to ramping that up. Now they're going to start blowing shit up. They're going to get railways. They're going to get depot cars. Fucking shit up. Maybe even a yeah. couple assassinations here or there. Yeah. And Swampy, that is going to be it for episode one of Virginia Hall. How do you feel? What are you thinking? It was good. Yeah. <laughs> Looking forward to the next one. Yeah. And listener, if you like what you hear, go ahead and do all the likes, subscribes, and all that. You know what's going on. Um, until next time. I've been your host, Lauren O'Brien. Thank you, Swampy, for joining me. You're very welcome, Lauren. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, we'll talk to you again soon. Goodbye.